Good morning interweb, welcome back to the Artifexian podcast. German does not in fact have a massive case system. Explained. Intertextuality in relation to the problems with new Star Wars, a Bank of Artifexia submission that has Bill do a guessing game, Yarte Yarlin suffers a mutiny on board the Nomad, we talk a little bit about vowel consonant harmony, and then we wrap it up by discussing Dune. All of that plus lots more in this month's episode. You like beavers? Uh, I guess I take her leave a beaver. Um, um, they're industrious animals, and they come with a fur coat. It must be very warm to be a beaver. Yeah, and like it's you know it's it's uh, saturated with oils. I think so. It's it's quite waterproof, and they don't you know they can go in water and not get waterlogged and, and cold that way. Mm. Um, there's a woman on TikTok who's a beaver rehabber, um, and has a lot of very good videos of beavers. Um, that she is rehabbing and, and like she raises them and then releases them into the wild when they're grown. Um, but they steal things obviously to, to, to build dams. They, they, you know, in, they have this urge to, to build dams and, and block up waterways and stuff. Um, so she had a lot of videos of them doing that. Um, but they're actually, they're really, really gentle when they steal stuff. They don't chew on things. They just steal them. So like it kept stealing shoes and um like stools that that had had kind of bars at like beaver height the the, the beaver would like bite it and try to drag it away because it's like oh yeah that's brilliant it's a nice big piece of wood I could use to build my dam but it didn't it didn't chew into it it was really gentle with all the things that it stole oh so the the <clears throat> the cartoon image of the beaver chewing through every piece of wood uh in its vicinity is wrong I think I think they they will probably do that to knock over trees and stuff but for whatever reason in this this beaver that she had was was being really gentle with the stuff it stole Aww. maybe because it was they thought it was already the right size yeah or maybe they just haul it to the to the potential damming site and then like assess the situation and goes and then they'd say like that chair that needs to be reduced now let's reduce. i mean that's 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 logistically sensible isn't it right you don't you don't want to do like mm. saw everything if you've got a big project like a dam is, you're not gonna, you know, size all of the concrete blocks at the factory and and I don't know what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> well, I was about to say, like, I, I think if you're German, you would do that. I think the Germans have a um a system of building houses where it all comes pre-packaged and made out of a factory, and it takes like two days to put up a full house. Um, so I'm not sure that analogy quite holds, Bill. They had that in the in the in the American frontier as well. You could order houses out of a catalog. That's mad. This is yeah. mad. It's so weird that we just don't do it like this. But anyway, the, the beaver, the beaver, the beaver. Yeah, but if the beaver were to take that chair and then disassemble it into smaller parts, yeah. they'd have to move all those smaller parts either at once, which would be a, a borderline impossible, or yeah. make several trips. So just haul the chair to the damming site and then chop it up. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I think it makes much more logistical sense. Yeah, they're smart kids, the beavers. Um, mm. uh, we will do the show, but my favourite animal remains the raccoon. I love raccoons. I love raccoons, raccoons on, good. on the internet with their little hands and they always mm. like do the little rubby thing with their hands and they wash their hands and they're just so... Like, obviously, they're gits and I'm sure they're incredibly violent and awful and have all of the diseases, but like, in video form, they're the most adorable things ever. Love them. Uh, kennst du wie heißt Raccoons auf Deutsch? Nee. Waschbären. What? Wait, washing bears? 
Yeah, because they, they're washing their hands. Oh. That's what it looks like when they're doing that. They're called Vash Baron. Oh, Wash bears. cute. Yeah, it's great. Oh, German being real literal again. I think I think the word for seal in German is something like a, a Meerhund. Uh, that makes sense, yeah. Something, I think it's like a sea dog. Let me just fact check that. Hold on. Google Translate. Okay, I've I've got two two translations here from Wiktionary. Oh, very good. What you get? Uh, so Robbe, R O B B E. Oh, okay. And Zehund. Zehund. Okay. Zehund. Yeah. So yeah. a sea dog, um, which is just which is cute and kind totally of totally accurate and piratey as well, like sea dog. Um, I think it's really cool. Anyhow, sea dog used to be what uh, sharks were called in English. <laughs> Bill, we really need to do the show. We do need to. I had one other very important point. Sloths are called faultier of of Deutsch. Oh, so like la- lazy animals. Lazy animals. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you uh, slash dfyx uh, writes into us uh, to call me out uh, in a nice way uh, about my misuse of the word massive last episode with regards to case systems uh i i think i meant said something like german has a massive case system uh, just for the record just to clear my good name german has four cases i, I am very well aware that that's not uh massive in the grand scheme of things uh u slash dfyx uh lists the likes of latin with six cases lithuanian seven sanskrit eight um, there's a whole bunch of Indo-European languages that have more cases than uh, than German. Uh, massive was the wrong word to use. I, I think I was going, I meant to say something more like uh, more robust than English. Um, mm-hmm. Something like that. So just, yes, German, four cases is not a lot. I know this. Please and thank you. <laughs> yeah? Fair enough. Yeah, uh, agreed. Uh, agreed. And then we have you slash Rec Jensen. Uh, we had this little d- uh, debate about Star Wars on the last show um, and, you know, its pros and cons of where it went wrong and what was right about it. Usach uh, Rec Jensen brings up intertextuality as a problem with the new Star Wars. Um, intertextuality, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I think, a good way of summarizing it is that it's like um, a story is reliant on you knowing about other bits of the story that are in other media. Uh, or other books. So the idea is to fully grasp, uh, to fully get a work, you need to consume it in loads of different forms. Um, I think, is that an okay definition of intertextuality? Uh, I wouldn't say that's, that works as a general definition, but that outlines what the problem here is. Oh, what's um, the general definition then? It's just kind of relationships between different works. Oh yeah. So that they, they refer to each other, they have some kind of thing like that. So you could have it that it could be it could be a lot more subtle and it's not uh, required for comprehension, um, and that would still be a, an example of intertextuality. Um, but hi, on when, when is intertextuality not intertextuality? Like, so if I'm reading a linguist paper and the linguist uh, a linguistics paper and the linguist says, uh, as um, you know. Um, as per the argument made in Grunewald 2020, um, I will yada, yada, yada. The, the fact that you need to go now go and read Grunewald 2020, does that mean that that's a example of intertextuality? I think it's more to do... I, I, I maybe, maybe you could make that argument, but I think it's more to do with kind of literary ah, okay. text right. rather than... Maybe not now. I'm not, I'm not a... Uh, I don't know what what this field a literary theorist or whatever, um. 
but I, th- I think it's more relevant to to kind of literary and artistic kind of oh, okay, things. Okay. So, um, what do you, do you think? Uh, what do you th- thoughts on this? Do you think intertextuality is a problem in Star Wars? Um, because I actually don't really know of the um, the surrounding works per se uh, with the new Star Wars. Um, I kind of only know about the mainline films and then the spin-off films. Uh, I haven't really watched much else. I don't know about the books or novels or comics or whatever. Uh, so is this the thing that you've noted that intertextuality is a problem with new Star Wars? Um, I think the issue is that every little thing is kind of given massive significance and every little kind of throwaway moment or throwaway character like has to get this their, their own um their own their own focus and be tied into the main narrative in some way um which is i mean that that actually for me serves to make the world smaller um mm-hmm. that everything has to tie back to this central thing um and there's sort of a a fan obsession to and a demand that that everything has this like super tightly connected relationship uh which i don't know just like let let things exist on the fringes and let things happen over there let things just kind of intersect and then go off in different directions mm. is is just it's it's more believable and um it's more um i don't know it's just, it's it's kind of more satisfying Wait, so your problem isn't then intertextuality per se. Your problem is just one of, like, the creative process. Like, they are choosing... Their creative process is we want to explore every nook and cranny and wrap it all together. That It's it's their approach to it, yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily imply intertextuality, does it? Because you could, you could do that all in films, for example. And you could you could have it in such a way that no comprehension is lost. It's just that they'll explore every little bit of detail and tie it always back. Do you know what I mean? Because doesn't intertextuality imply that you need to consume everything uh, in order to understand what the hell is going on? No. No. Oh, okay. No. That, that's what I was saying at the start. I don't I, I don't think it does. Uh... As, as like, the, the kind of the normal usage of the term, it's just that there are relationships. Oh, uh, okay, <clears throat> right. And your problem, your problem there is that the, there are too many relationships, and they're all tying back into this one kind of thread, and that closes off the world. Yeah, and that that things kind of aren't just allowed to to just be. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Like I, I said it at the time uh, before the uh, sequel trilogy came out, um, that I was like, I think it'd be a great shot if they just didn't refer to the sky skywalkers at all um like <laughs> yeah. s- like set set a uh, i don't know set a series of three movies back at like you know the dawn of time when the, the first jedi arose and no relation to skywalker or anything or anything we've ever had just make make the universe feel so much bigger it's just kind of it's just a bit mad that like we've had nine movies all dealing with this one family um yeah it's a bit it's a bit nuts like and then you know <laughs> to contrast that with the you know the vast expanse of a galaxy, and I, don't know, I guess you could make an argument that it's kind of a neat contrast that, like, it's set in this like giant expanse of this galaxy, and then all we're going to do is focus on this one tiny family forever. Uh, I guess you could maybe make that argument, but it just feels jarring to me. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, so yeah, that was Rex Jensen uh, on Star Wars intertextuality as a problem with the uh, new Star Wars things. And yeah, I th- I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Bill. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, now, final thing. Uh, this isn't really follow up, but like we're going to put it at the start of the show because we're going to review Dune later on, so we should talk about it now. Is Bank of Artifexia the triumphant return? Good capitalism, <laughs> they called it. Um, the uh, we have a, a letter ASMR from from you slash I can't. This person gave me the IPA for this bill, but. Like, it's so difficult to pronounce. I think it's you, you slash Zeruon. Something like that. Zeruon. It's weird. It's it's So I'm going to refer to this person as Zer, if that's okay. Uh, because I, I can't do the thing. So Zer is a... I, I believe Zer is German. Because they write Moses' letter in German. I'm, I apologize if you are, in fact, Austrian. Uh, sorry about that. Um... This or Swiss or Swiss or anywhere where German is spoken. I, th- I think there's a is there a big German speaking contingent in uh, is it Uganda? Wasn't Uganda a former colony? Uh, there's a few places where um, Namibia was, I think. Kenya was. Kenya was. Wow. I think so until the First World War. Wow. Um. So if you are Namibian there, I'm really sorry, uh, and you just you just speak German. Um. Now the. I want to do something a little bit different this month, bit if that's okay with you. Uh, I w- Sorry, I was wrong. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was ta- modern Tanzania, um, Burundi, Rwanda, Tanzania, and not Uganda. I thought Uganda was. Maybe it was as well, but this is the not what, but not the bit I was thinking of. Is the Uganda? Hold on, Uganda flag. Should the Ugandan? Yeah, the Ugandan flag is all Germanic because of that, as far as I know. Like, if you look at the Ugandan flag, it's basically the German flag. Fair enough, yeah. I, I trust you. I, oh, okay, I'll follow up on that um, uh, next month if I'm just completely off base with that. Okay, so I want to do something a little bit different today, today Bill. I want mm-hmm. you to open up the link in the show notes. Okay. Okay, uh, to the money section. Everyone, This will be chapter art and this will be on the YouTube video for everyone to see. I want you to have a guess at what's going on here. So I want you to attempt to identify the banknotes, if that's okay. Um, so some of them are obviously going to be really hard, but let's see if you get any. So um, we'll go top top left first, the 200-something note. What do you think that might be? Uh, check. check. Yes, that's 200 check Karun, uh, I believe, or crowns, uh, Zare says. Okay, what's the one below it? Um... Odna Grivdia. Okay. Uh, it's Ukrainian. Yes! Uh, how did you get that? Uh, I read it. Okay, I see. I can't read, <laughs> see, I can't read Cyrillic. Um, yeah, uh, no, because I was thinking I, I, it has like a, a letter that looks just like I, which isn't in Russian. Um, so I was thinking, okay, well, it's probably something former Soviet. And that guy looks like he might be kind of some sort of steppe warrior. Uh, but then the in the top left it says uh, National Bank Ukraine. Uh, and and the cor- I mean I'm I'm guessing that's that's the sounds are roughly similar to something like that. So I'm guessing it's how it translates. You are correct. It is indeed. It's one Ukrainian. Oh, I can't even begin to read what what Zara's written there. 
Hurrianya? <laughs> Maybe? Um, and the colours obviously give it away as well because it's got the Ukrainian flag. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, on of course. It. So that's that. Now, the one below that, this yeah. this 10-something rudder, what do you think that is? Croatian. That is, let me just double check, from Croatia. Where does it say Croatia on the note? Hrvatska. Oh, is that like the Croatian name for Croatia? I think so, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, very interesting. Okay, cool. And then the next three, these are obviously a little bit different. Okay. So what's at the top top right one? The the 10-something rudder with dude on it, holding out what appears to be bricks. Okay, so is this pre-20th century? It is not pre-20th century. Okay. Um, so my guess is that it's either some kind of local currency, like just one city. Um, that's my, my, my main guess. My second guess is that it's some kind of company script. But I, I'm going to go with that it's something from a specific city because it says Stadtlage at the, at the bottom. Um, yeah, it says Stadtlager. So it's a, lo- a local currency to some, to some town or city. So it says Stadtlager. Do you have any idea what the E and the like the, the next two uh, glyphs after the word Lager at the bottom? What the hell are they? There's an E. So it's an an I and an L. Is that an L? Well, it's it looks very similar to the one in Lager. Oh, that's right. Sorry, yeah, of course. Um, what the hell would I dot L mean? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, so I think you are correct. Uh, Zer writes here, Fort, we have 10 Pfennig. So it's German. Okay. Um, from the town of Lager, uh, brackets Lippe in Germany. It has nearly 35,000 inhabitants and is situated in the modern state of Nordrhein-Westfalen. Um, it has quite it has quite some brick industry back when this Notgeld uh, was issued. <laughs> so Notgeld being like, I'm assuming that means like uh, paper money. Um, I think, uh, or something like a note, note money. I think. Um, so that the interesting thing there. So this is, I'm assuming, local currency. The interesting thing here is that uh, I don't know uh, where Laga is, but Laga is apparently on the Lippe, which is a river, and the Lippe runs really close to where my family comes from in Germany, in Nordrhein-Westfalen. Oh, um, nice. So, for anyone, for any Germans, uh, I think the nearest big town to where we live is Lunen. And I believe Lunen is on the Lippe, um, which is in and around Dortmund. Uh, And it's in Northern Ireland. That's what I thought, yeah. I was like, oh, that's cool. From from like my my neck of the woods, my family's neck of the woods, should we say. Um, Okay, then we have uh, money number five. What is this? Where is it from? Okay. Uh, Fennig. Uh, Fennig. St- Fennig. You gotta get that Fed. <laughs> yeah, Fennig. Um, it's such an ugly sound. I hate it. So. I, lo- I really like it. Ah, oh, it's uh, awful. <laughs> Amstvar Carlos u Osterholz. Uh... Oh, Bremen. Bremen? Where, where did you see Bremen? The bottom right. Bottom right. I see. Der Dortland? No, below that, outside the border, Druk in Kaster Sumling Bremen. So that means, I guess, means printed in, yeah, in yeah. Druk. Pr- printed in Bremen. Druk is to print. Yeah, so uh, this is a. Uh, it is 25 Pfennig, so that's 25 uh, Pfennig, which is like 
old German pennies, or cents pennies or yeah yeah pre mm-hmm. pre euro cents um and it is from Osterholz uh which is today parts of Osterholz Schambede I can't read the writing uh in lower saxony it has 30,000 uh inhabitants uh, and there's text on the back that says a thing that I'm going to say to you Bill and uh, I want to see if you can translate it yeah Okay, Langsambitter. Langsambitter. Uh, now, this is written in this mad, uh, like, what I'm going to say is Nazi font. I'm sorry, but I, that's the only way I know that that script. Uh, so some of these consonants, I, I just can't read. So I'm just gonna... Gothic type or Germanic type? Something like that. Um, but loads of these consonants are just, like, mad in my eyes, and I can't really read it. So if I mispronounce this, I'm sorry. But here is what I think it says. Durch... Sparsamkeit or Sparsamkeit geht's auch in schlechter Zeit. Okay, uh, hold on, I'm going to write that out. So, durch, durch, uh, Sparsamkeit, Kite, yeah. geht's auch, geht auch, in, in schlechter Zeit. So, something about through something. To something also bad times. Geist geist auch in. Geist auch in schlechter Zeit. Do you know what the word spa is? Oh, I was thinking of spas as in fun. Um, ne, was bedeutet spa? So the, we have a shop here called Spar, and that comes okay. from, from the German. That means to save. To save. To save. Yeah, as in save money. Man kann Geld sparen. Oh, okay. So it's like something about saving money for 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 difficult times. Yeah, perfect. So durch Sparsamkeit geht's auch in schlechter Zeit means something to the, to the effect of uh, through the saving the savings. Um, it you can also uh, you can also go in bad in bad times. So true, yeah, you know, true I, I saving that, yeah. goes also in bad times. And what does what does Zayer say is, is the exact translation? Um, they just say that uh, it, it, if there's a the text on the back that advises you to be thrifty. So don't give it an exact <laughs> uh, thing. So that's that. And then the final one. Final one. What is this bill? Where is it from? What do you think it is? Um. Well, this this is from uh, somewhere else on the Lippa. Um. Because it says Lippe Detmold. Um, is is Detmold the place it's from? Um, um, I'm going to. And the wunderschöne Stadt darinnen ein Soldat. So uh, a wonderful city with soldier with a soldier in it. Yeah, uh, a wonderful city uh, in it, a soldier. Um, yeah. And Zer mentions that, and this this reminded me of your work, Bill. Um, Zer mentions that they don't they dislike this because of kind of like the. Uh, militaristic undertones and like you know it's a yeah. beautiful city city because hard men inhabit it hard men that will fight for the nation Brrr, that sort of nonsense uh, and this like th- I looked at this and it was kind of like this could be straight out of Ekern like straight <laughs> out of Ekern um, so uh, yeah they, they mentioned this is 50 Fennig from Detmold a city of uh, 75,000 people also on the Lippe um, 
a beautiful city there in the soldier uh, and they go on to say that they uh, hate the militarism aspect of it um these were issued all three build uh, all three of these bills of north gales were issued between 1919 and 1922 to deal with the shortage of coins after the war um these are, i think are quite valuable um uh he got them from his great uncle uh Yus, maybe is that how that's pronounced um and these are duplicates that he got from uh that that Zayar got from his great uncle so i actually think these would be worth something like actually worth something like a lot wow um which is mental so thank you so much uh i'm glad to hear that they're duplicates and you didn't just give me originals because that'd be terrible please don't do that um so that's pretty cool and so so these were these obviously duplicates of of paper money of of notes oh yeah because you said note guild uh, no, um, no, uh, in the sense that like um zare got a wad of cash from his great uncle and he sent me the duplicates from that stack. Yeah, 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 yeah 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 but like it's, it's like the original is is notes as well i mean um yeah yeah obviously. so the idea being um, that the metal was scarce or whatever and yeah they were just like here take some take some money it's fine take some paper. yeah very I've, I've never heard of of notes for such small denominations before i mean i mean i don't know what what uh, saint fennig would would buy you in 1919 but i'm guessing it still wouldn't be like a lot yeah i i, don't, I doubt you're buying a mercedes with saint fennig um, yeah yeah but again i mean if all if all the metal has been used up to make bullets then mm. you know what are you going to do i'm just going to rely on some paper money um what else do there's a bit of that um zare doesn't have anything particular to ask um, but he, there's a few, I'll put, pick out a few uh, choice quotes here. Uh, he thanks us uh, for bringing the YouTube world building community together. Um, oh. Auf Deutsch as well. So, vielen Dank, dass ihr die Persönlichkeiten der uh, YouTube world building Szene so zusammenbringt. Uh, he also says, das beste Artifacts in Video ist auch immer noch die Kooperation mit Zidaf. It's good to know <laughs> that I peaked about five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, welches ist dein best in uh, podcast episode? Well, at the bottom, and I, I might actually send you a bit after recording, uh, Zare has drawn a little cartoon. Uh, okay. And there's two blokes here talking. One says, okay, what's the funniest moment of your life? The other bloke thinks to himself, and there is a picture of uh, that bloke sitting in front of a computer with the Artifacts in Podcast logo on it, and the words Betamax Crinkle Dash emanating from the computer. <laughs> <laughs> it lives on. Woo! Wow. <laughs> Uh, that's that's a that's a pretty high honor. That's yeah, it's really great. I'll, I'll send you the picture of, uh, dunk. of the cartoon. <laughs> Man, like it's that, that beta back sprinkle dash bit. That was the that really was the funniest thing. That and Mitch's YouTube uh, survey um, question from the pub quiz was is just golden. Uh, so anyhow, thank you, sir, for the check money. That is new money. That's awesome. That'll go into the bank map. Thank you for the Ukrainian money. I don't know. If that's new money, I haven't got the map open. I think it might be. And thank you for the creation. I think the creation is new money. So that's awesome. Uh, and then a, a special thanks for the note, Gel. That is, that is awesome. And like again, the thing that I never realized once embarking upon this coin or this money collecting venture is that, you know, again, I was figuring I'd just get a bunch of notes from the countries as they exist um, in modern times. I never imagined that people would send me like old money from places that places mm. and times that don't exist or like fake money and, and like local currencies and it's made me appreciate just how like really kind of 
wide and diverse and uh, interesting the world of collecting uh, coins and money is. It's not just like, Mm. I went to Spain, I picked up some uh, euro with a Spanish symbol on the back. Yay. It's kind of like, it's this (laughs) mad sort of like trip through history every time we do this. It's it's absolutely amazing. So thank you so much, sir. Stand up for sir. Woo! As is tradition, world building is about to commence. Bill gives the summary and then launch into it. So it is somewhat the same as things I've written before, but it's a little different. It is an in-universe document, mm-hmm. um, but instead of it being a letter, it's a, a, a legal statement. Oh, yeah, cool. All right. Yeah. And it is responding to some ideas... Uh, raised, raised by you, and I think in the the live chat of the of the last episode. Oh, we're getting to civil war. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Being the sworn testimony and bonded oath of Lieutenant Yar Tyarlen concerning the late events aboard the patrol vessel Nomad. The details of my training and commission in the company are a matter of record, both public and within the archives of the military commission. Fearing no dishonour or contradiction, I shall nonetheless present here an account of my history and service in the fleet. Having been joined up in Mircea as a probationary officer, I served with distinction upon the Aspire, where I gained extensive experience in the finer points of command, gunnery, navigation, and vessel tactics. During this cadetship, I partook in the Battle of Selen Lake, numerous smaller engagements and prize-takings, and myself was given command of a prize when the smuggler craft Senan was taken in the Transusin region. Upon completing this probationary period and receiving full lieutenancy, I was employed in logistical and administrative affairs in Usim Province Depot. My qualities having been proved with distinction, I, two seasons past, received a commission, being assigned commander to the patrol vessel Nomad. On the evening preceding the events in question, I had retired to my cabin following the crew's practice of nighttime gunnery, as is my custom. Vishta, the Nomad's weird, had the night command, with mate Bashin due to relieve her at dawn. I spent some time engaged in administrative affairs before taking to my cot. At the time of my sleeping, there had been no alarm raised. I was roused by a pounding at my cabin door. Noticing that it was still dark without, I believed an engagement was imminent. Opening the door, I was immediately set upon by Everick, chief of the lower battery. Striking me upon the head with a work hammer, he then forced me back half-dazed into my cot. Everick and two further conspirators, Sinem and Ferdi, members of Everick's crew, bound me fast and gagged me with ropes. It was apparent from the stench of brandy upon their breath that they were thoroughly drunk. Having secured me, they set about ransacking the cabin, in the process destroying the ship's logs and account books, and thieving both cash and promissory notes from my personal funds, several of which had been due to creditors in the depot and elsewhere. Recovering my senses quickly from my assault, I was able to perceive the disposition of the crew and the progress of the mutiny as I was transported roughly to the brig. 
As I understand, this is what took place. Weird Vishta was lured to the Dvint on false pretenses, where she was struck unconscious by the Dvint crew. This happened at the same time as my attack. On the upper observation deck, a mutineer, I believe it to have been Leov, assaulted the lookout, a fellow common aviator who had not been seduced to mutiny. This struggle was spotted by the duty marine, who raised the alarm as I was taken to the brig. A detachment of mutineers was set to guard the door of mate Bashin's cabin, awaiting his arousal at any commotion. He woke to the marine's alarm, and when he emerged, they attacked him with hammers. In his defense, he slashed one, the cook, Coven, and wounded him mortally, whereupon his comrades became enraged and killed him, rather than merely subduing him as they had the other officers. The marines' quarters were set upon by the mutineers, those eight or so not engaged in other acts. The marines fought a respectable action to the brig to release myself and the still insensate weird. However, the cramped conditions of the vessel and the superiority in numbers of the insurrectionists proved the advantage, and three were wounded, two mortally. The remaining pair surrendered, and was stripped of weapon and uniform, and placed into the brig alongside me. In total, I believe perhaps 12 or 15 of the 48 souls I had aboard were committed mutineers. The five marines and three officers were, of course, the chief resistance to insurrection, along with a handful of loyal common aviators. The remaining majority of the crew bear no guilt in the mutiny, saving that of failing to oppose agitation and dissent among their ranks, or to report it to superior officers. The following day, the mutineers, having established control of the vessel and through violence cowed the majority of the crew into accepting their illegal authority, held elections to establish command of the Nomad, and a sham trial in which Vishta and I were accused of all manner of outrages. These ranged from the dishonest, brutality of discipline, false accounting, withholding of pay, to the outright fantastical, that is, membership of a conspiracy against all groundsfolk, not allowing for the relatively modest circumstances of my own birth. Opinion was divided as to whether we should be executed or stranded. The mutineers, in their bloodthirst, pressed for execution, but the more moderate voices among the crew overcame them, and thus we were stranded upon the hills, where we spent four nights awaiting a passing vessel that would respond to our signal fire. This vessel, the Altini trader Vale Ada, transported us directly to their nearest depot. There, I was granted a rapid transport to Usin Province Depot, where I am composing this account. It is my belief that this mutiny was not a spontaneous outburst of violence. It is clear that this was a planned insurrection against company authority, fomented by agitators and agents working in our midst. The following facts lead me to this conclusion. The attack took place when the weird had the night command, and she was attacked first, thus preventing her from alerting the fleet. Secondly, the attacks upon the weird, myself, and the upper deck lookout occurred near simultaneously, suggesting a highly planned action. The mutineers' drunkenness was a buttress to their assault, not its foundation. Thirdly, the attack took place at the midpoint of the patrol, at a distance far removed from the depot, allowing the mutineers more time to escape ahead of pursuit. Finally, 
There was no whisper of dissent or dissatisfaction among the ranks during the patrol, leading me to believe this was planned on the ground, in concert with agitators and conspirators of the general malice plaguing the Abeski cities and companies at this time. Oh yeah, Yarte <laughs> Yarlan gets ousted. I like it. <laughs> His uppance has come. His uppance has come. I, I like that. That was good. It, you're right. It is quite long, but um, like it, it read really well. Time flew. Um, oh good. So I I think we should keep the entirety of that in. Okay. Uh, I would have no problem with that at all. Um. So can you give us just a quick rundown on the Nomad's backstory a little bit? This is the patrol vessel that Yarte Yarlin is in control of, or was in control of. Yes. So um, the last two things we heard from Yar uh, were that he had gotten a promotion, um, that he was uh, appointed as commander of this patrol vessel, um, uh, the Nomad. And then after that, he uh, wrote some details of his first uh, engagement as commander. Mm. They were chasing some sort of bandit ship, weren't they? Uh, yeah, they were. They were chasing. Uh, I think they described them as as free traders or smugglers mm. or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And yeah, that's that's kind of where Yar has been at. Um, oh. enjoying now he's you can see from this he's been in it for uh, two seasons so he's he's been at it a little while at this stage uh, uh, can we define seasons is the season a uh, climactic thing or a societal thing oh that is a good question hmm. um let's say let's say a, a a social one that's a social one okay great, great. yeah um but okay. you know it's you know let's say it's it's about like six months ish Cool. All right, cool. Uh, and then a recap again. What is a weird and what does it do? Um, it's uh, uh, an officer position on on uh, a vessel. Um, and they do communication and other weirder stuff. We talked about this before. Do they do like occult stuff? Sort of, yeah. Sort of. You've never explored that, I don't think. Not closely, no. No, that'd be interesting. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, okay, so then uh, Yar's doing his stuff and then there's a, a, a mutiny on the ship and he gets taken in and people are killed and that's great and all. And then the mutineers... <laughs> <laughs> and then the mutineers had, and this is a quote, held elections to establish command of Nomad and a sham trial in which Vishta and I were accused of all, manager, uh, manager, manner, all manner of outrages. So, um... The, uh, the question on the elections, would this strike Yar as being really strange? Like, is a ship's captain an elected position ordinarily under a Besky culture? Um, yeah, and if not, uh, would Yar be looking at it and being like, what are these barbarians doing having an election? What's the crack there? Um, it might happen in uh, outside companies. Like, okay. or, you know, in... in kind of smaller, smaller endeavours. Um, like, not one of the big sea companies, but, like, if, you know, a, a bunch of people found a, a small trading interest together um, and outfit a, a trading ship, they might um, 
elect positions, yeah. But it would be very contrary to the, the idea of um, military and commercial discipline that the, the companies would follow. Okay, so Yar is probably looking at this being like, what in the hell are they doing? I mean, he's familiar with the idea, but it's it's just, it's it's totally out of context, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I'm assuming the, the things that they were accused of, um, the brutality of discipline, false accounting, withholding of pay, uh, conspiracy against all grounds folk, etc. I'll talk about that bit in a second. I'm assuming those actually occurred and they aren't outrageous claims. They are accurate. Um, I mean, what, what do you reckon, knowing what we know about Yar? Well, I mean, the brutality of discipline, I guess, I think that fits the bill uh, with an Abesky man of position in the Navy. What do we call this? Like, what do we fleet. call Fleet, in the fleet, yeah, yeah. Um, false accounting and withholding of pay. Possibly, false accounting seems, uh, seems a bit like white collar. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I don't, I can't see him doing that. I can see him being a dick and treating people poorly, but I can't really see him fudging the ledgers. Um, the conspiracy against all ground folks... I think, yeah, where I are, I would say, of course, I don't have a conspiracy against all ground folks. I have no issue with them. But, like, in practice, there is a big giant conspiracy against all grounds folks because that's what um, kind of colonial endeavors are, per se. Uh, so he may not personally feel that way, but he's definitely involved in it. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was kind of aiming for there. Like, he, he lacks the sort of analysis to be able to see it as such. Um it's not like he's explicitly a member of a secret society that is okay. is intent on oppression. Um, and, you know, to be fair, it may be an overstatement of the case on the part of the mutineers. Um, sure. But it is essentially, he, he is a member of the of the, the propertied uh, class. Yeah, for sure. Or, or at least a, a tool of theirs. Uh, so I, I'm going to take back the false accounting withholding pay for a second there. I, I could totally see him actually just not paying his workers very well and being like, you didn't work enough. I'm not paying you. Uh, you only get paid when you do X, Y, and Z. And I guess false accounting kind of like uh, it falls out of that where he needs to fudge the ledgers to make it known yeah. that he did pay people when he didn't, etc. So yeah, actually, yeah, the whole thing I could see him doing I would actually reverse the the likelihood on on those. I would say those are more likely than the than the brutality of discipline. We know that he's um, believed to be dishonest at cards. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would never have pegged Yar himself to be a brutal man in the exactly. in, in the sense of interpersonal violence, but I would totally peg him as be like, here, uh, henchman, go beat this guy up. Mm. Um, like one doesn't have to inter- like engage in interpersonal violence to be like um, a harsh dictator on the ship. I, I don't mm-hmm. think. Um, I, I love I love that bit that you say like uh, membership of the conspiracy against all grounds folk, not allowing for the relatively modest circumstances of my own birth. Mm-hmm. There's so much in that, right? Like, first of all, relatively mod- modest is like a very fudgy term, right? Like you can see, like anyone of any socioeconomic uh, upbringing can go. I grew up in a relatively modest sort of circumstance that's one of those things that people say to kind of like hide what's actually going on do you know mm-hmm. uh, so it's a real wishy-washy term and the other thing is 
this line strikes me a bit like I can't be racist. I have black friends. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like how can I, how can there be a conspiracy against ground folks? I am a ground folk. It's like well that doesn't make any difference, pal. You could hate your own kind. That's fine. yeah. It, that, that's 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 pretty close to, to kind of what I was thinking. That it was that, and also um, like a, a, a wealthy person who says, "Well, I worked for everything that I have." Um, when they actually came from wealth. Yeah, man, just, sorry, just a really quick tangent on, on that. Uh, do you know the YouTube channel Jubilee? I do not. Uh, so they, they're like this YouTube channel and they do, their shtick is they do, oh God, how do you actually define their shtick? Um, they, they have a whole bunch of formats, but one of the formats is where they get a whole bunch of people who have something in common and they ask them questions and they have to, uh, rate on a scale of like one to five how much they agree or disagree with the question um, and so one of the episodes I watched many months ago possibly years ago and there's multiple people per video multiple people per video right, yeah, gotcha gotcha uh, and one of the ones I watched was on millionaires um, and they asked them a bunch of questions and like one of them was like do you consider yourself lucky or something like that um, and then it was really fascinating watching all the rich people like uh, and they have to spatially align themselves. So, like, if you think, if you strongly agree, you move all the way to the right. And if you strongly disagree, you move all the way to the left. So you can get to, like, spatially see how these people think. And I just, I'm continually blown away with people who are well off, like, who are not poor. Just completely dismissing the look side of it. Um, and, like, it's almost, I almost get the impression that if you go, like, oh, you're wealthy because you're extremely lucky, they almost think that that's kind of, like, a bit of a an insult or a put-down. And they go, no, 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 there's no luck in it. I worked really hard for it. But I'm like, you can have both. Like, you can be extremely lucky, and then you've capitalized through hard work yeah. on that luck. Like, both of these things can exist. I, I, I find it really weird. You worked hard and, you know didn't have a serious illness at at critical points in in that yeah. process and yeah 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 and, and like it's it's just mad watching people be like you know like how how can you tell me i'm lucky you know i i, I found the company from scratch etc and did all this and i'm like of course you're lucky like everyone like the fact that you're here is lucky you weren't hit by a car like everyone's lucky you just capitalized on the luck and i just find it really obtuse when people who are wealthy just downplay the luck element just mm-hmm. accept both like both are okay they're totally cool. Yeah, be lucky and capitalize and work hard. That, that, that's it. You know, not not mutually contradictory. Exactly, but they always treat it as mutually contradictory, and it just it it blows my mind. Anyhow, anyhow, so I love that line. <laughs> not allowing for the relative circumstances of my own birth, and also I don't know how like groundsfolk speak, but that seems really like like a hoity-toity like language. Um, you know, well, in, in fairness to him. He was from, like, he, he had been an apprentice in some kind of trade before, or some kind of labour, before yeah. he signed on. He's become um, nouveau riche. Um, yeah, he'd be like kind of kind of working working middle class who, who has kind of ascended quite quite well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I don't know, again, I don't know if it's the case, but the language used, maybe it's because it's a legal document, it has to be kind of like prim and proper, but the language uh, strikes me as a person who maybe has forgot there um, where they came from not allowing for the relatively modest circumstances of my own birth it just seems just like a really ott way of putting that anyway so that's that i love that middle section man i think this middle section is absolutely awesome fair play um what are the what the vessel 
uh, that picked them up, the L. Deltini. Uh, G- Deltini. Um, we haven't seen them before. We don't know what the Eltini are. Who are these I? People? I think I've mentioned them in passing anyway. Uh, so the the Eltine company is just another another Abeski company. Mm. Oh, sorry. I thought they were like a people's. Uh, no, like, no. They're no. Eltini traders. Okay. Yeah, cool, cool. yeah. So they're they're, they're like uh, something along the lines of the Tamar company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. And so at the end, then when uh, Yar sums it up and ha- gives his conclusion about why he thinks this was a coordinated attack. Um, he says the attack took place on a night where the weird had the night command and she was attacked first, thus preventing her from alerting the fleet. Uh, do I read into that like subtle undertones of like, were I in command that night? Such a thing would not have happened. But the weird was. And look where we are now, lads. Oh, uh, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could be saying that. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that angle. Um, but yeah, that is no. that is definitely... That is definitely in there. Um, Death to the author. What I had been, what I'd been aiming for there, um, was was like the so the the weird has um, responsibility over communication and stuff, um, and could have at a distance alerted other vessels or alerted like the the depot that a mutiny was taking place. So they had to take her out like as one of the first blows to stop that happening. Mm. Like just like you know, take over the radio station. Um, on 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 the the cruiser, so that they they can't radio back that there's been a, a mutiny. Take over the radio station and just play the artifacts in podcast on loop. Just on just loop. play the artifacts in podcast constantly. That's yeah. It. yeah. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. No ads. The uh, no music. Just artifactsian. Man, you've got such a great voice for radio. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like I re- I really don't, but I just let you got such a deep voice. Like radio and deep voice just work together. Like. Oh. Bill, you've got such a, a good voice for radio, so deep, and then I just start giggling. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm when I'm a little bit bored, if I'm if I'm bored during the uh, editing process, I will just mess with the EQ of your voice and just to see how low I can bring it, and it's brilliant. Like it's it's just it's like this earth shattering rumble if you just like boost up all the bass. Like, mm. <laughs> 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 Should definitely um, um, have that as as an extra. On, on our first our first physical release oh well April Fool's Day is coming out uh, so we, we might be able to do like Bill minus uh, no Bill plus 20 decibels of bass um, be great crack anyway yeah. uh, on the communications thing right so th- this is the thing that uh, I realised when reading this how do people communicate because we we only know of communication via letters mm-hmm. through your writings and I don't think we've talked about how uh, long distance communication works like do they have like uh wireless um technologies how like how do they how are they communicating um for, for the most part no um but the weirds have some limited ability to 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 send short messages um or signals over over distances via um that is what via that is what they do Okay. Also, also, that's part of their occult stuff. Yeah. Are we talking telepathy sort of stuff? Um, not as overt as that. No. Ah, oh, but it's not. It's not like mechanical communication. Um, I haven't decided. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That's that's interesting. And then, and outside of the ships, like, how do people? I'm assuming groundsfolk and stuff. They communicate primarily just through letter writing. Along distance. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so absolutely. not... Okay, right, grand, grand. Um, like, I mean, b- bear in mind, like, we've we've seen letters go between, like, executives within companies and, and, and people of very high status, and they they are still sending letters. Yeah. Um, and it's it was a, 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 a priority for the Tamar company to have, like, a, what was it, a seven-day turnaround between one of the cities and the Hoytan depot, which is, like, very far away. So letters are still, like, infrastructurally extremely important. Physical physically carrying messages is still uh, extremely important I guess because you said that the weirds can send messages short messages over some distance I guess this kind of uh, makes moot what I'm about to say mm-hmm. but it occurs to me if if the weirds are communicating via um, whatever this non-mechanical means um, we'll, we'll call it does that kind of do a little bit of world-breaking stuff here? Because, like, surely weirds don't just exist on ships. Like, like, do do grounds people have this weirding ability? And if so, I'm beginning to imagine a society where, like, every small town has its one weird. And those weirds are able to communicate with each other over distance with each other. And, like, you have, like, essentially, like, a, a village shaman type person that acts a bit like a post office. Uh... Have you thought about this or considered this at all, or am I completely off base? Is this world breaking? Uh, I don't think it's world breaking. No, I haven't. I haven't put enough time into figuring out what it is precisely that the weirds are doing to to answer that yet. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely that th- there is a a potential um, thread to follow there. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess just quickly off the top of my head, if I had to justify the disparity there i would say well it maybe it requires some kind of specialist training or equipment that isn't easily accessible but that companies can provide um yeah but, but i mean but then you you can get to the point where you say like retired weirds uh, who no longer want to be out there performing military duties or return back to their villages mm-hmm. and then they would then perform that role anyways so instead of having just general shaman postmen you just have old shaman postmen yeah do you know um I wonder, is this, again, I know, I appreciate you said that you haven't looked into this yet, but just uh, musings between the two of us. Um, mm-hmm. Is the the weird stuff, um, is it, are you envisaging this as being sort of an innate ability that all people in this world have and it just requires training to come out? Or would you envisage it as like, it's a, it's a gift, like being musical, for example, only a small subset of people in the not music well loves people musical but like i don't know artistic or ability to draw um only a small subset of people have this ability are you envisioning the same thing with the weirds only a small subset of people have this uh and have the potential to go on and become weirds i hadn't thought about it much but i, I probably would have leaned more towards the latter yeah that's interesting so then you can end up with like systems of kind of like weirding apprenticeships mm. um where you go to weird school and you get to like, man, this is getting very fantasy very fast. But I guess planetary romance, you wanted that. You have like Bene. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've mentioned like mythical monsters. Wait, no, hang on. Were, were the monsters in this world? Like not on this planet, but in this universe. Yeah, ha- no, uh, yeah, they are in this planet. Yeah. So I guess that kind of fits like, um, that's, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. <laughs> why, why, why this angle at all? Like, why didn't you just go? Oh, we need a communications officer, and they have like a wireless and done. Um, 
because that would break the the thing a little bit too much, I think, to, to have just, oh, there's radios. I think that would be... Um, it, it would kind of take away a lot of the the the, the conceit of, of the writing is that I am writing letters between people. Oh, sure. Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. Um, how did they do, you know, back in uh, Napoleonic, like, naval times or whatever, how did ships communicate to each other? Or how did people get messages to ships out in the open sea? Post. Post. Yeah, but, oh. like, physical letters. Wow. Yeah. How, how the hell are you meant to find... Wait, sorry, again, ab- apologies, artifacts, I know nothing about how naval culture works. But if you have a ship, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I have a French ship, right? And I'm sailing across the Atlantic mm-hmm. to go assault some Native Americans, right? <laughs> um, and I'm in the middle of the Atlantic, and someone wants to send me post. Mm-hmm. How in the hell are people going to find me? Because even if I give them the, like, trajectory of where I want to go, uh, and, you know, plot and be like, you know, in, uh, in May I'll be at these coordinates, that's so kind of random because, like, you know, storms could come, you could be blown off course, etc. Like, surely posts just never arrived at any of these ships with any degree of reliability. I understand that it was unreliable, yeah. Um, but you can make, from what I understand from... Um, I mean, I guess I'm reading historical fiction, so don't don't take this as gospel. Um, but from what I understand, you can make reasonably good approximations of where people will be uh, based on, um, like, currents and, you know, what a sensible route to take would be. Um, wow. And then you would also send multiple copies, very likely. Um, wow. But yeah, it is, it is, it is still unreliable. Um... And, like, you, you know, you would accept that you're probably not going to be able to catch up to someone. Maybe you'll catch them on the way back. Or you'll mm. um, give it to another ship that's going in that direction. Or you'll leave it at a... Um, at what I keep calling depots in, in Ikern. I can't remember what the word I'm looking for in, in the real world is. Um, but you'd, you'd leave them, like, somewhere where they might stop to rewater or to, to refuel or... Yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that makes sense, yeah, yeah. So you might have, like, yeah, one of the Caribbean islands or whatever. Exactly, be yeah. A place where you dump a load of post. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, but, because- I mean, like, it's 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 a curious thing that, you know, a war could a war could be over, um, or, like, it could be declared finished, and it could still be fought for months because, you know, if you're engaging French privateers in the Pacific like who's going to tell you that the 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 peace has been signed in paris <laughs> i mean that that's one of the uh one of the mind-blowing things about the second world war i read or i listened to dan carlin hardcore history great podcast apparently real historians think it's pretty you know not as academic as, as it purports to be but i find it really fun go check it out links to show notes um but they uh he has a series on it's called supernova in the east and it's basically tracking uh, World War Two, the the Pacific um, th- theater of war, mm. and the powers there, and how the, all the interplay, and it's really fun. And he opens it up by uh, telling the story of a guy called Hiro Onoda. Do you know this chap? Uh, not specifically, but I've a pretty good idea where this is going. Uh, so he was. I'm going to get the dates wrong, but he was a Japanese soldier fighting in World War Two. Is it World War Two? Yeah, it's World War Two. Yeah, it's World War Two. Um. 
Yeah, of course, because Supernova in the East is a reference to the atomic bomb. Um, so, yeah, he's fighting World War II and uh, Carlin paints his image of Japanese cult- military culture uh, at the time of being kind of like they have a divine right to rule and uh, because of that, there's no way that they won't rule and they won't win everything because God intended it, that sort of crack. Uh, so it was kind of inconceivable for soldiers at the time to accept a Japanese surrender. And so this led to this really weird phenomenon where there was a bunch of Japanese soldiers who like like literal decades after the war had finished and hostilities had ceased, that they were still in like the jungles of various uh, Pacific islands and nations still killing locals because it was just inconceivable for them to understand that the war is over. And this particular chap, Hiro Inoda, he had to get... The, the Japanese government had to get his old military commander, who now was, like, doing civilian life as a shoemaker or whatever, and, like, had to had to get him, at great expense, fly him into wherever Hiro Hinoda was, and to have him honourably discharge Hinoda, because no amount of interaction with anyone would convince this chap that Japan, that Japan was defeated and surrendered. Mm. And this was, like, I, th- I, th- I'm, I'm, I think it's the 70s when this guy was still out there as an old man, just like murdering people because it was like, I don't accept that the war is over. <laughs> and that's it. And it's just like, what even is this? That's nuts. So that reminded me of like the idea of like not receiving posts, not knowing the war is over. Even in modern times, uh, or, or slightly pre-modern times, um, people didn't uh, understand, didn't hear about it, didn't know about it, and they just kept fighting. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there's. I think there was there was quite a lot of of um, instances of that. Like there's maybe a a, a a dozen or so recorded things of of imperial Japanese holdouts. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Absolutely mad. Like I, I I really mean to read that guy's book. He wrote a book, Hero and Oda. Oh, cool. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to at some stage read that and just to get into that mindset because that must be what a mad world to live in. Like to mm. be at war for like. You know, like if the date, if my dates are correct, like for over thirty years, like nuts, absolutely nuts. Um, anywho, um, that's all my points. That was my last point. I wanted to know about how communications are done. Um, have you got any points? Anything I missed? Anything you want to clarify? Um, uh, yeah, go for it. It is now a matter of legal record that Yar absolutely intended to pay his debts but those mutineers stole the 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 money that he was putting aside oh i missed that (laughs) oh you're right yeah 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 oh snaky man what's going to happen legally to him like why is he uh is he in legal bother for letting his ship be taken away from him or is this just standard protocol like every time something happens you have to give a debrief uh yeah no this isn't like him being on trial as such um, that may still happen, uh, pending the outcome of, uh, you know, initial investigations and recovering the the nomad, etc. But no, th- this isn't his defense. It's it's just kind of his um, deposition, more so. Um, yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, if if we look at it historically, uh, uh, so the the probably the most famous mutiny, or one of the the most famous mutinies um, in history, is the mutiny on the bounty. I don't know it. Which was, which was seventeen eighty something, seventeen eighty. No, it wouldn't be as late as seventeen eighty nine. Let me check. Um, mutiny on the bounty. 
was oh no it was it was 89 I was oh I was right oh. nailed it um uh 1789 uh and actually I I based a, like I, I read uh Lieutenant Bly's account of the mutiny um to kind of give me some ideas for how I'd structure this and Lieutenant Bly went on to become a vice admiral like he, oh. he was the commander he was the commander of the bounty um and it was like this this you know really famous thing um he he lost control of the vessel and he he navigated like like thousands of miles in a small open boat with 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 some of his kind of loyal officers and men um and eventually made it back to Great Britain and then went out to to recover the mutineers um so like it wasn't it wasn't a an end to his career um he he became like very very high up i think he was like governor of australia for a while wow. um he like he 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 did loads that's such a weird term like governor of australia so he was the governor of new south wales yeah oh, okay okay because I, if i was like governor of australia sounds so weird because governor is kind of like that implies very kind of small scale and australia mm. is very big so yeah. just like governor of australia is such a weird term to think about so yeah um yeah but yar yar here isn't you know like he's not like traversing seas in an open rowboat like it's not i don't know it, it seems like his path is not one is not, not one of upwards mobility at the moment he, he has not covered himself in glory no he has not thank christ douche um and he's he's two seasons in and he still hasn't you know he's still on patrol duty he hasn't gotten a, an independent cruise yet um which he's probably quite sore about um do you know i wonder this is probably a bit uh wishful thinking but i wonder like given that we now know that um yar um came from relatively modest air quotes beginnings i wonder if there could be in his future a a he could turn i said last show that he wouldn't turn but now i suddenly it occurs to me that if he keeps you know, not ascending in the companies and he keeps suffering misfortune, his, his like experience of the companies might sour a lot and he might be like, I'm going to change sides here and, you know, get on the, get on what looks like to be the upward trajectory of this mutiny and this, all these hostilities. There's, I, I don't know, part of me thinks there's a non-zero chance that we might get a Yar flip. Maybe there's a redemption arc where he returns to his <laughs> roots and he becomes like a, you know a decent person an honorable person a brave soldier that sort of thing but for the other side don't know but yeah okay who knows who knows okay world building done 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 excellent okay right let's do real quick let's do some uh, of my creative output and um, sure. vowel consonant harmony i made a video finally um have you watched this video have you got I any have thoughts? watched this video Links in the show notes, all this, folks. Um, I have a question about mm-hmm. uh, a definitional issue. Yes. So you used the, the word contiguous mm-hmm. in, in defining uh, vowel consonant harmony. Mm-hmm. So contiguous within the domain, so within the word or whatever. Um, what does contiguous mean and how is it separate from the fact that within the domain is already a bound and that transparency and obstruction are our limits as well. 
Oh, that's actually really interesting. Um, yeah, contiguous. I mean, the way I read it was just that, like, uh, for the types of harmony that must be contiguous, like the harmonizing segments, the harmonizing sounds have to be right next to each other within the domain. And blockers and transparent units, they're just exceptions to that rule. Right. Is that different to the examples you give late in the in the, the video of, um, was it Falkel Harmony? Falkel Harmony, yeah. Falkel Harmony, um, where it only applies to certain features. Is that the same thing as there being transparency, just there's loads oh. of transparent elements? That's interesting. That was not discussed in the research, uh, so I'm going to say tentatively no. Okay. Uh, but I guess you could kind of analyze it as being like everything that's not inf- affected is in fact transparent to the harmony. I've just not seen that analysis right. of it like that. But then again, these things, I, I really couldn't find an awful lot of literature on uh, these harmonies because like vowel consonant harmony is like particularly the non-contiguous stuff, like it's like really rare. Um so it's not yeah. like I couldn't find like a big book on focal harmony and like, just you know, 300 pages of information on it. Um, that means you've got to write it, but Yes, leave it to the non-linguist to write the book on focal harmony. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's. I think that might be a matter of interpretation. How, okay. you, how you choose to analyze it, I think, maybe. Okay. Don't shout at me, linguist, if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I couldn't see a clear distinction between the the two ideas other than one is just like you've got more exceptions yeah i mean i never thought about like that but that does kind of make sense uh and again ultimately i don't know uh, and it wasn't addressed in in the research cool no any other points um sounds hard like like both both as a thing to learn in a language it sounds really difficult and it sounded like it was a like not a huge amount of resources on it for the purposes of making the video and yeah i mean this is i'm constantly running into this with these videos because i'm like you know i'm like i want to do harmony what types of harmony are there's these three there is like one that's clearly the most uh cross-linguistically common in language vowel harmony right it's everywhere and then constant Mm -hmm. harmony a little bit less common and then vowel car vowel constant harmony like more less common again i always think to myself like should i just make a cutoff and just be like, I'm just going to talk about the vowel harmony, right? Because that's clearly the big player in the space and forget everything else. But I keep going, no, I must be exhaustive. And then I end up in a situation where I'm looking at vowel constant harmony and there's like no literature on it. I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also the thing that I find the most difficult about it and one that I'm I, I'm, like, I'm kind of reticent to ever really try a lot of these in conlangs is that they're just so bloody hard to pronounce. Um, like pharyngeal harmony like is a nightmare, I think. Or emphatic harmony, should I say, is, is a nightmare. Uh, the, the things that happen in Arabic. Um, the uh, retroflex harmony, like uh, apparently retroflex vowels are in fact a thing, according to the research, but like I don't know how to make a retroflex vowel. Like you say a vowel, but you curl your tongue backwards in the mouth, I, I guess, but it just comes out sounding like mush. Um, like it's just so difficult to pronounce. The only one that's kind of easy to both implement and pronounce and to deal with is nasal consonant harmony, vowel consonant harmony. That's the only mm-hmm. one that's relatively easy because like English speakers kind of have a sense of nasal vowels uh, through contact with French. And then like nasals are nasals. Ma, na, na. They're, you know, we have those. They're the most common sounds. So it's an easy one to do. But for the most part, vowel consonant harmony is a disaster in terms of implementation <laughs> and pronunciation. Yeah. 
it's yeah i would avoid it like the plague really if you're going to do it do nasal harmony the rest just it's okay don't worry about it (laughs) um those were my questions okay cool Uh, i have three points all of which are going to be explored in a follow-up video as well but you know we're here discussing it uh here we go um the first point I want to point is out is that we've done this before with other Harmony videos, but I just want to stress again that there is... Harmony is like a process of like mass-scale assimilation of sounds, right? Mm-hmm. Assimilation also happens on a very small scale, a local assimilation. And they're kind of like... It can be kind of confusing uh, to people because it's like, when is something just like local assimilation and when is something Harmony? Uh, so I just want to stress again, like there are a bucket of languages where a consonant alters a vowel next to it or vice versa, right? This happens, like, all the time in language. Like, in, in Korean, for example, like, S goes to SH before E, right? So they don't say C, they say SHE. Right. Happens all the time, right? Um, the question you need to ask yourself, uh, like, you, can't, you just don't jump straight to go to, to that and then go, oh, that is harmony, right? Because it's like, this is vowel-consonant harmony because vowels are affecting consonants. That's local assimilation. The question to ask is, does this happen like systematically over large scale domains? So is it that like, oh, okay, so S is turning to SH before E and then all other sounds in the word or the clause or the phrase or whatever are affected. If that's the case, then you're looking at a harmony system because it's like this macro scale systematic assimilatory change, right? If that's not the case, and it's only like just you know two two uh, sounds right next to one another uh, changing, that's like local assimilation, and they're like they're different beasts, kind of all together, despite being kind of related. So it's this real weird thing about what is and isn't harmony. Uh, so I just want to put it out there again because lots of people are like, ah, oh, like Japanese does this, and I'm like, no, J- Japanese does assimilation, like many mm-hmm. other languages. It doesn't have systematic vowel consonant harmony at least as far as i know i'm pretty confident in that assertion yeah so it's it's like if it, it happens like to an immediate neighbor it's assimilation if it happens within a domain it's mutation uh, i mean i guess i mean you could define a domain as being an immediate neighbor domain equals me immediate neighbor. okay yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah. more just like large scale structures yeah uh but yeah again again not being a linguist i don't know the answer to this it's like you know at what point do we class it a large-scale structure? Like, what happens if the harmony affects, I don't know, like, three syllables away from the trigger or whatever? Is that a large-scale structure? I don't know if this actually occurs in that line, but it's just probably the question of, like, what is and isn't a large-scale? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the point is, it can be kind of tricky to spot, but in general, in general, if, like, an entire word is morphing, you're looking, you're going to look at harmony in, in general. And, like, not only one word, but, like, many words. So if many words, you, like if you're in Turkish, you write out a bunch of words and they all appear to change, uh, like the whole scale of them changes, uh, you're looking at harmony. And if it's only just like, oh, every time you have a S before an E, it goes to shit. That's like local assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a thing to watch out for. It's not actually all that relevant in Conlang because like, you know, you're just going to go into it doing what you're going to do. And then what, what you call it is up for f- future space linguists to like argue over. Um, but it is kind of relevant if you're looking at like defining what real world languages are doing I think yeah um, so that's point one uh, harmony versus assimilation they're both assimilation one is large scale one is small scale watch out um, I have a question about assimilation 
Go for it, yes. So, <clears throat> uh, broad and slender vowels in Irish and the way they affect consonants, is that assimilation? Uh, yeah, I, th- oh, I should know more about this. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it is. Yeah, the only thing that's holding me back, again, I'm so sorry. I know we have listeners of this podcast who are like avid Celtic language fans, so I'm sorry if I say something stupid here. Uh, the only thing that's holding me back is, I wonder, is the broad and slender thing an orthographic mnemonic that we use as opposed to assimilation? No, because because the pronunciation is different. Uh, yeah, but like uh, that pronunciation can just evolve to be what it is. and we From decided- orthography, though. No, not from orthography. No, like the the pronunciation evolves as it evolves, and then right. we make this orthographic convention to be like, oh, if there's oh, a slender, sorry, yeah, that's what yeah, you mean. If there's a slender vowel mm. before this consonant, pronounce it as a slender consonant. So, I guess, yeah, because you can get you can get c and you can get she in Irish, like both of those, but they're, they're just they're just written differently. So yeah, I guess it isn't quite the same thing. So uh, I, well, the point is, I don't know. I don't know where yeah. it came from. I don't know the di- di- diachronic aspect of it. Um, right. with the broad and slender sort of stuff. So I would need to look into that to say for sure. But certainly something like that can mm. be a process of assimilation. All right. And what was the other thing I was going to say on that? Oh, yeah. yeah. So the other thing I want to point out, a uh, comment I got was about directionality, right? So uh, in the video, I keep referring to stuff like, um, you know, uh, progressive harmony, left to right harmony does X, whereas regressive harmony, right to left harmony does why right and a few commenters were like this is really uh this the the language you're using here is incorrect because uh writings at different writing systems um so like a uh, right to left in arabic script uh or sorry like how, how do i even say this yeah right to left in the arabic script means a different thing from right to left in our script right mm. Because different writing directions. Uh, just to be absolutely clear, I totally get the confusion here. I think the nomenclature is a bit bit bollocks, if I'm brutally honest. But this is what it is and what's in uh, the various papers I was reading. Um, left and right here do not refer to writing directions. Left and right refer to like um, uh, temporal directions. Like left right. being the start of an utterance and right being the end of an utterance. And that's just kind of the convention we've and set upon. Th- that is what is used in, in papers on this topic. Yeah, yeah, All right. yeah. They, well, that's in bad. general, they'll they'll uh, use progressive and regressive. Yeah, and that's then much better. If clarification is needed, they'll say left to right spread, or mm. leftward spread, or rightward spread, and that's always is is not in reference to the orthography. That's in reference to time. So, like, a, if you imagine a waveform just like filling out in front of you on like a, a an audio recorder, left is the start of the utterance, right is the end of the utterance. That's the convention we go with. Yeah. Boom. Um, and I appreciate yeah. progressive that. and regressive is much much better. Yeah, but I guess you can make still make the same argument. Like regressive means backwards, and then someone can go be would be like, yes, but that's different in relation to which way you write stuff. Do you know? No, because it's backwards in time, and like you don't experience time backwards in different Wait, does, languages does, does, does unless word, it's a rival. Does the word regressive? Does the word regressive necessarily refer to time? No, but like. Left to right can only refer to a visualization of time, whereas regressive and progressive can refer to time itself. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Progressive and regressive is, yeah, 
it is a bit more. Or maybe I should just stop using the left word, right word thing because I always feel the just need. Get get your stuff together, linguists. It's like I mean, Jesus. I mean, it, Edgar's some, back is killing from having to carry the whole field. Some um, of it is really bad. Like the the one the one that I really hate, and it just it, to this day it pisses me off is uh, the difference between uh, indicative and subjunctive. Uh, and irrealis and realis, right? Those are big fancy words, right? We have indicative, subjunctive, and realis, irrealis. Now, you'd think, because they have different fancy words, that they'd be totally different things. But for the most part, like 99% of the time, they are literally just the same thing. Indicative is realis, subjunctive is irrealis. And it just falls out of, like, different nomenclatures being used over the years to describe language in different parts of the world. And we've just stuck with it. And I hate it. And it makes no sense. They should either just all be called indicative or subjunctive or all realis irrealis. Don't use both. This is awful. <laughs> but there you go. And I'm sure someone's going to be like, well, look, languages that are marked realis and irrealis do very particular things that languages that are marked indicative and subjunctive don't. I'm sure that's the case. But for, for most part, they're basically the same thing. And most people just treat them as being the same things. So that's my rant out of the way. Sorry. Um, last point is that apparently I pronounced the word Arabic wrong. Is this correct, Bill? Uh, you pronounce it in a way that I certainly notice as unusual. All right. How do you pronounce that word? Arabic. Arabic, not Arabic. Yeah. Huh. I, uh, where, uh, there's a country in the Middle East that has that word in its name. How would you pronounce that country? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. So I say Saudi Arabia as well. Do I say it again? Saudi Arabia. Okay, I don't voice the S. What? You go Saudi Arabia? No, I, I say Saudi, whereas it sounded like you said Saudi. Saudi Arabia. So, Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi that, Arabia? Sound, that sounds more like how I'd say it. Saudi. Oh, maybe. Uh, I think this might be my German is coming. So Saudi Arabian. Yeah, okay, so it's Saudi Arabian. The emphasis on the Ra. So maybe that's where I'm getting Arabic from. Very possibly. Arabic. Yeah, because people were shouting at me a lot. And I was like, am I pronouncing it wrong? Arabic? 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 <laughs> Arabic? Um, so yeah, apparently I pronounced it wrong. There you go. Must be my Germanness. Um, we can Sounds add that to the long list of words that I, in English that I can't pronounce. Um, see where. Uh, no, that's which, right. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm pronouncing it the correct way now. But ordinarily I pronounce it wrong. How do you uh, ordinarily pronounce it? Where, which... Yeah, because people 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 get mad at me for making anything out of the H, and they say that I say it funny. But like, no, you there's do, a H yeah. there. You do, no, but I, the... I, I I say it the way you changed it to. So how how do you? Yeah, I know, and that's wrong. How how do you? No, but you said it was right just a second ago. <laughs> no, 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 no. I said I pronounced things wrong. See these words, and then I listed. I was going to list out the words that were pronounced correctly. Uh, so that people can watch me stumble through pronunciation of where and the. Yeah, but that's the way I say where. <laughs> I think you're doing this deliberately. I, I'm absolutely not. I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I don't understand how you're contradicting me. <laughs> okay, but anyway, hold on, hold on. How do you say the word, when you question someone, there's a WH word that you would use. How would you say that? I mean, any of the WH words. Uh, if I did something... And you'd be like, blank, the hell did you do that? Wherefore? <laughs> Wherefore hast thou done this? 
<laughs> uh, three letter WH word. <laughs> why? Yeah, so you, you go why? Yeah. Why? 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 Oh, wow. That's, that's nuts, yeah. It's not. It's, t- it's totally normal. I mean, yeah, but it's also totally normal to drop the H, to be fair. So I, I, I do not have the wine-wine merger. Actually, they, they write it the other way around. The wine-wine merger. So he's whining. I drink wine. Okay, yeah, I have that merger. Yeah. Mm. Man, it's just nuts that we, we live like geographically so close together and we just speak entirely different languages. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those are my points. Harmony versus assimilation. Watch out. Make sure you define things correctly. Uh, directions, leftwards and rightwards aren't, uh, are non-orthographic there in relation to time. Um, and I say the word Arabic wrong. And I think it's because I'm half German and my English is awful. Those are my follow-ups from Vowel Constant Harmony. <laughs> Anything else to add? And sh- or should we head into the green room? Um, have you ever considered doing a, a, a consonant mutation as a topic? Because it does happen in other languages than, than just the Celtic ones. Yeah, I should, shouldn't I? I really should. Um, I guess. I mean, obviously, the Celtic ones are my favourites for it to happen in, but. I guess. Um, I think I might actually struggle to make a video of it. Okay. Uh, because like it's a really shockingly simple thing. Hmm. Um, and unless I see, I don't know enough about like, does consonation come in like different flavours? Um, like in, in the way vowel harmony comes in like five or six flavors. If constant harmony came in like uh, not constant harmony, sorry, constant mutation, uh, came in a bunch of different flavors, then maybe. But like the way Irish does it, you can explain that in like basically two sentences. Hmm. Um, yeah, there were sounds at the end of words that created intervallic consonants across word boundaries that caused lenition. Those sounds were lost. That, that's that's basically it. And with a few examples, you're done. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, I'll, I'll take it on. I'll take it on consideration. Okay. Now, green room. Let's go to the green room. All right. So, green room. We are finally going to review Dune, the Frank Herbert novel from '65. I think it was 1965. Uh, I don't know. I, I th- uh, I think, Dune published. I think it's 65 he wrote it in august 1965 there you go um so from this point on there is going to be massive spoilers for this uh and there will be no extra content after this point so we're literally just going to talk about dune and then we're going to say goodbye and we're done so you're not going to miss mm-hmm. anything so if you haven't read it or you haven't seen the movie or whatever you can just dip out now it's fine uh next time we review a book we're going to review the stone sky which is book three of the Broken Earth uh, trilogy by N.K. Jemison. Mm-hmm. So, that's all you need to know. If you have, don't want to know anything about Dune, stop now. I'll see you later. Have a good one. All right? For everyone yep. else who stayed, let's talk about Dune. Um, so, usually, Bill, I ask you to do a bit of a summary. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think that despite this book being horrifically dense and complex, I actually think this can be summed up in basically one sentence. Okay. Uh, which is, uh, dude goes to a desert planet, becomes like a shaman computer, and then <laughs> rules the universe. Is essentially the book. 
Potentially, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like that's basically it. So we have this Duke. We'll... That's that's uh, the, the the barest bones plot outline. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, uh, what I will do for folks though is uh, I'm gonna throw a link in the show notes to uh, Thug Notes, uh, which is the just great series on YouTube. Uh, they do a review of Dune in a really funny and novel way. Go check it out. Um, but yeah, basically the shtick is that our main character is Paul Atreides of House Atreides. We're in this sort of like far future feudal universe where you have a ruling empire and like major houses. And Paul is a member of this House Atreides. They're given the fiefdom of this planet Arrakis, the desert planet. Uh, the re- one of the resources on this planet is a thing called Spice, which is a drug that basically the, the all, all the society needs. Like everything runs on this drug. Um and yeah so the paul and his family go to this planet uh paul becomes this like mystic shaman uh religious figure computing god creature thing whilst on the planet um he befriends the natives of the planet and kind of creates this like army or whatever and by the end of the book he's seated on the throne and is emperor of the galaxy um there's nuances in the middle but that's basically the summary correct yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did you, what did you think of the book? Um, so I, I, I read this before, mm-hmm. uh, probably when I was a teenager, um, and I remember more or less enjoying it, but with some reservations. Um, and this time around, I got more out of it, and I had a few more reservations as well, though. So I, I can't decide if I like the book or not interesting huh okay okay there's elements of it that i really really like um but there's certain just kind of like literary things that i don't like about it interesting okay have you got like a chronological list of notes taken uh not necessarily chronological but i do have some notes okay well i have a kind of roughly chronological list of things that stood out to me so how mm-hmm. about I go through them and then at any point when you're like, oh, that occurred in this section, just jump in. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So my, my first comment is that uh, the start of the book. So like I love my fantasy and sci-fi stuff. So I'm mm-hmm. pretty okay with a bunch of made up words and lots of weird terminology and a thousand characters being thrown at you at once. But like, even for me, I think the start of Dune, there it's there just you're assaulted by terminology and people real quick. Um like to name but a few um a few things like in the opening I don't know chapter or so, you there are terms like the Orange Catholic Bible, uh the Quizax Hadarak, the Gom Jabbar, uh the Beni Gesserit, uh, I think Truth Truth Sayer is another one that's thrown in there. Yamis like a gazillion characters and i know from speaking to like non genre fiction nerds that they've attempted dune before um and just within the first like chapter just like nah it's not for me it's too much made up words there's too mm. many people and i was kind of kept an ear out of for because i like you i read this uh before as well i kept an eye out for it uh this time around and i think it is there's a lot in those first couple of pages is that something that struck you uh yeah, it's it, it it opens quite dense. Yeah, like really dense. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, and it's very unforgiving about it. And there's lots of stuff in it that you that you're just left to kind of uh, 
wonder about what it actually is. To give a, a poor example, but one that springs to mind immediately, that that orange Catholic Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's never really talked about. It just it's just put there and mentioned. And like I kind of get it, or at least I think I get it, as an orange being like the color, a Protestant color, and Catholic being you know not Protestants, and this might be a combined future doctrine of Christianity or something like that, is what I got. But at no point okay. is that really talked about, at least to, to the best of my knowledge. And there's many things like that where it's just kind of like they say a made up thing, and you're like, cool, what is that? And then like a hundred pages later, you're like, what the hell was that thing again? What what and you, there are parts where at least when I was reading it, I'm like, I'm lost. <laughs> like, what's going on? I I didn't mind that example so much, um, and I think it does do a lot of that, um, like introduce things and then you kind of have to figure it out through context later on, um, but like you know the the Orange Catholic Bible uh, is a fairly it's it's kind of throwaway. It's not it's not critical. I think it does a pretty bad job at explaining what the spice is. <laughs> Do you think so? Like, yeah. I was, like, I, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, but I still don't really get what it is. Okay, you, you know, you, you, you can put it in food and it can it can give you give you um, experiences. Yeah. It, it can give you, like, hallucinations and stuff. But, like, you put what in- is it? Like, is it a rock or is it a uh, plant? Or- <laughs> I mean, I just always assumed that it just basically looks like sand. Yeah, I didn't get that. Wow, that's interesting. I suppose the thing for me with the spice that I found really jarring, and I, I guess we're already skipping ahead a little bit here, um, is that it just that it's a bit kind of like it's a bit all encompassing. Like everything runs on spice. You eat the spice, uh, the spice affects you know the way you look. You also put the spice in your spaceships to make them go fast, and it's kind of like. No, you don't. Yeah, you do. The bloody interstellar. Oh no, sorry, sorry, sorry. My bad. No, sorry, my bad. Uh, sorry. The 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 dudes in space to navigate space, you have to be drugged up on spice. Yeah. To be able yeah. to make so, the spaceships work. Yeah, but like that's that's. I mean, that fits in reasonably well. I think with the with the yeah. the other uses of it. See, like it's 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 not like it does everything. It's not a an all purpose substance. It it is specifically a a. a uh, hallucinogenic a drug that makes it's a magic drug it's a yeah it's a magic yeah i guess i guess you see it makes sense uh but i just how do i phrase this it it feels a little bit like like oil to me in a way where it's like this really really important commodity that like all of society basically runs on um, yeah, and and like and if I think about it, I go, yeah, okay, we power our cars with the oil. We wrap all our food in oil-based products. Like everything around us is like oil-based. Yeah, but I don't live in the world where oil permeates my every thought all the time. And there's just, and I guess I don't live in an oil-centric world then. But there's something about when reading Dune that you're just kind of like, okay, we get it. Like you use the spice a lot, but every just everything is meant to be centered around spice in a very overt way the way irl not everything overtly is centered around oil if you try to see what i'm getting at here i i see what you're getting at Uh, uh, the first thing i'll say is that means i think that you've understood dune because that's very very much yeah yeah, the point yeah 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 yeah. but like the second thing is if this was a, a story set entirely about two lads on caladan who have a podcast um, it's not going to be all about the spice. 
But this is a story yeah, yeah. about the spice. Yeah. So I of mean, course it is. That's fair. I mean, again, it makes sense, but I just, I, I can't really put into words why I just, I just like can now with the spice a little bit. Like, and again, I, again, I get it. It's an important commodity. The story is about the spice. It just, yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe there's like, maybe the story is about the spice, but there's also like a competing resource. Like there's something else out there that isn't just make, makes a spice this monolithic thing, right? And you can still have a story about the spice, but there can also be like, there's broader things out there. Well, actually there's a competing space company that actually have shunned the use of spice and they actually do do a different thing or whatever, but it's just kind of like... That would... That would be a very, very different story, though. I mean, I guess, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I just need to get over my uh, spice phobia a little bit. But uh, but yeah, anyway, to go back to your original point, I always just assume spice was just like some sort of mineral that's in the sand and you just extract it and then it turns into like, it looks like salt crystals. That's what I think it the, looks like. It's, it's explained in the glossary. Or in the in the appendices, it's explained. It's explained. Oh, I do not have. I did not have appendices to the audiobook. What did what did they right. say in the uh, in the glossary? And this also answers about your your um your thing about the Orange Catholic Bible. That's that's very clearly explained in the appendices. Mm. Um, so what are those? The appendices things? are deadly. The appendices are really good. Really. Yes, they are. They are in universe um, oh. explanations of things. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, which you know, I love. You do. You know, um, I love. And, oh, now we're really jumping around again. Uh, the Princess Irulan, who does the little sound bites at the start of every chapter. Yeah. That's great in the universe. The bits in italics. It's in italics, and it's very Bill, but it's, it's great <laughs> universe building. And, like, yeah. I, I believe I believe that the... Because it's said at the end of the book that the Princess Irulan has, like, notions of being a writer. I, I, I suspect those sound bites are from a future publication of hers. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, that that that's clear in the book. Yeah. Um, if you read it, like it's it's given what where those extracts, which of her works those extracts are from. Yeah, and I I think that was really really fun, and yeah. I really enjoyed them. Um, yeah. Anyhow, where are we talking? What is the OC Bible, and what is Spice via the a, a glossary? If you have. It. Uh oh God. Um. So the the Orange Catholic Bible is created. Um about 10,000 years before the start of the story, I think, um, after the Butlerian Jihad, which is Butlerian. the... Um, which is the the war, or the, the conflict that ended the use of computers. Yeah. Ended I've, the use of thinking machines. I have I've, I've a point on that later, but yeah. Um, and it was to... Basically, it was that space travel was this hugely, f- like, fundamentally... Um, category changing um occurrence in the human psyche and religions were readjusting to 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 deal with this massive change in human experience this like seismic shift in what in in what humanity knew about uh, and this was uh, an attempt to make an ecumenical liturgy um is that the right word like an, an ecumenical text yeah. combining all of the world's major religions Oh, so the Orange Catholic Bible assumes all the religions. Every every religion with more than a million followers wow. um, was uh, sent a delegate to the, this like big uh, convocation or something, um, and uh, the the Orange Catholic Bible was the result of it. And it was like if you if you read the 
the the the full account in the appendices it's um it was hugely controversial and there was like wars and riots over it like from adherents of of faiths who didn't want it to be uh who didn't want their faith to be uh, changed by ecumenism mm. um and it was like a thing of massive social upheaval and it was kind of a failure in its in its immediate context but it became an enduring thing of human religion in the in the millennia afterwards wow that 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 appendices does sound baller <laughs> You know, it's it's really good. <laughs> and did they make any reference to like the name? Because like again, Orange Catholic implies like it's came out of Christianity. Like the, nothing about the name implies anything beyond uh, Western religions. So, so the, the the word the word Catholic has a specific like if if you spell it not as a proper noun, it has it has a a, a specific meaning, which is kind of like a it, it's like holistic. It's like all encompassing. Oh, interesting! Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. That. So, if you if you could you could describe someone as a the a, a, a person of of Catholic tastes, and that means that they're interested in everything. Wow! Yeah, uh, and I I always kind of thought that the the orange was a, a reference to Buddhism. You no, know, there's like there's certain um, mm. I don't know like divisions within Buddhism where they wear like orange robes. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess, I suppose, yeah, for a non, uh, uh, an audience that does not come from the Anglo-Celtic Isles, uh, the yeah. connection of orange to Protestant, 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 oh, Protestant, oh, I can't say, what's the word, Bill? Protestantism. There you go, that's the word. Uh, the, uh, the orange connection there is probably not immediately recognisable. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're probably right there. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Good God. I maybe I should read more actual books and not just audiobooks. Um and what was the other one? Uh what does it say about the spice? How do they define spice? It's really hard to remember because it's quite weird. Um the the spice is a byproduct of the life cycle of the worms. Yes. That's why They're... the Fremen call the worms the makers. Um, Worm poop. Uh it's it's so that they have like a fungal stage kind of hmm yeah it's 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 a biological byproduct of the of the the larval stage of the the worms i think yeah and i guess i guess you know what it actually looks like is of a little consequence like who cares you just you consume it and it's fine mm. um but yeah anyhow so that's uh, info dump it started a bit much jesus we really bounced around there um my next point was dr ua right so for again just uh, a more micro plot point here is that once the Atreides um, uh, land on Arrakis, the desert planet that has a spice, uh, there's a plot set in motion by the previous uh, owners of the planet, if you will, the Harkonnens, to try and uh, defeat the Atreides, basically. And to do that, they've uh, turned one of the Atreides' men uh, and he is tasked with like killing the Duke. My thing here is that maybe it's a bit kind of like low-hanging fruit here, but like I found it really strange that like that whole plot point was just a non-reveal. Like it's just understood from the start who the traitor is and, yeah. and that's it. I was kind of like, oh, that's really odd. Like usually the way I'm used to consuming media is that like you're like, oh, there's a traitor and I missed. Who is it? And then at the end of season 10, we finally learn who it is. But here it's like, you know, uh, I'm being facetious, but like page two, we learned that Dr. Yue is out to kill the Duke. And you're like, oh, yeah. It's really anticlimactic. I I think there's ways you you can do stuff like that. That it's it's uh like knowing knowing what the 
knowing who the traitor is allows you to kind of appreciate the burn of of like waiting for the for the the betrayal to come or whatever. But my issue with with it in this case is um it's slightly different to that. It's you learn that they have done this impossible thing of breaking the imperial conditioning that prevents doctors who have this conditioning from harming people. Mm-hmm. You learn about that at the exact same time that you learn of the existence of this imperial conditioning. So it's like this huge earth-shattering moment in the in the actual world building and in, in the setting is that you know we found a way to break the imperial conditioning. But like I like I I I'm hearing about this in the same breath that I'm hearing of the imperial conditioning. That has no significance to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not a, it's not dramatically effective. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean was it meant to be though? I like I I took that as kind of just a throwaway explanation as to why he turned. Or, or the the mechanism by which you turn. Like, I, I didn't read it as like we're meant to be shocked and awed. We just need to understand like this is how it was achieved, and that's fine. Continue on. Well, I, I, you know, I think because it is in the setting, it's it's a shocking and and awful kind of thing. Yeah. But that's not well communicated by the because, like you know, in like in formal terms, we get th- those bits of information at the same time. So it's like yeah. No, I feel like I sh- I feel like I should be bowed over by this, but I'm not emotionally invested in that concept. So it's okay, whatever. Yeah, I mean, like uh, I I can't say I, I I'm with you on that. Uh, like I okay. get it, but I I don't feel uh, as weird about it as as you do. Uh, the no reveal thing, I feel pretty not great about because like from my perspective, is that like if you don't do the thing where the traitor is hidden to us and then is revealed, you're kind of ruining a second reading. You know. Because it that makes it makes me at least want to go back and read it again and be like, oh, can I pick out the clues? Yeah, yeah, and like that's yeah. just a completely not a part of this book because it's just like it's just told like he's a traitor, it's fine, whatever. And like they have this uh, really fun scene um, uh, during the course of this traitor arc uh, where Doctor Yue speaks to Jessica, which is our protagonist's mother. And they have this whole, like, intense, like, psychological thing going on where, like, she kind of knows he's lying. He he kind of is trying to evade it. And there's kind of this kind of, like, uh, subterfuge going on. It's kind of cool and stuff. And, like, that's great and all. But I think it would have been so much better if all of that just wasn't explained and they just had a conversation. And then you read it the second time and you you're, you yourself impart all of this, like, second secondary meanings to what they're saying because you now know the information so i think i don't know i think that's a bit of a letdown having a non-reveal mm. um but that's just, just my point anyway uh, do you have anything to jump in at this stage we're at dr ua stage no okay next that, I, I have i have written down breaks in universe rules too soon mm. conditioning so that was that was my point for that one cool uh the next point i have is these are gonna be real lowbrow points uh and most of them are kind of like X is cool. Uh, so here we go with the first one of these. Stilgar, which is the leader. He's the leader of the Fremen, uh, mm-hmm. or was the leader. Well, still is. He still remains the leader of the Fremen in, in a way at the end of the book. Uh, the Fremen are like the native people of Arrakis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so he's... Closest to. Closest to, yeah. And so he comes uh, to um, uh, Arakeen, which is the city in which our protagonist is is living when they're on on Arrakis, and he comes there to like meet with uh, with the Duke or something. I can't remember the exact reasons why he's there, um, to form some sort of alliance, something like that. Anyhow, there's a really fun bit of culture in that exchange where we get the Duke and the leader of the Fremen together, where the Duke spits on the table of the uh, the, the the Stilgar, uh, the leader of the Fremen, spits on the table 
of the Duke. Mm. And like, there's even in the book, it's it's hilarious in the movie, and it's I also found it really funny in the book where everyone's like aghast and people are ready to like pull out their swords and be like, "How dare you spit at our Duke?" And everyone's enraged. And then like you, there's a moment of like realization, be like, "Oh no, wait, no, this is actually the highest compliment that can be paid because water is so precious on this desert world." Um, that the act of giving up your body's water by spitting is like incredibly, uh, like, um, uh, grat- what's the word? Gratifying, um, uh, complimentary, complimentary, that sort of thing. So, and I really enjoy that. It's kind of like that's a real cool bit of culture building. Of like, of course, mm-hmm. they, 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 uh, they prize their water, uh, to an extreme degree, and spitting then is an act of love and things like that, as opposed to an act of like rudeness it is for us so i absolutely love that and it's just really fun watching this like thinking about this big burly like man of the desert comes in he's like and then all these like proper posh people like oh what are you doing and then then someone has to be like no no it's okay it's okay he's saying thank you (laughs) i love this uh, yeah, that that's a real a real just simple bit of world world building simple and effective and i think there's a lot of it um uh throughout the whole book particularly your surrounding water where it's just like, I feel like Herbert has really thought about how mm. the native people of Arrakis would view water and bodily fluids and blood and the sort of like, yeah, their, their culture around liquids, yeah. basically. And I think he did a really good job. Like, I think I thought it was really immersive. Like your, your flesh belongs to you, but your water belongs to the tribe. Communists. Water communists. Water communists, exactly. Uh, and yeah, it's great. And like they, yeah, when someone dies, they they reclaim their body's water for the tribe, and that does. And then that opens up a whole idea of like you know what does uh, um, funeral celebrations look like for the fremen, mm-hmm. and it's just oh, it's great. Like he really thought about it really well. Uh, obviously, this is not in any way comparable. But like if you if you think about the culture of Tatooine versus the culture of Dune, like it's. It's different worlds in terms of like exploration of society and yeah, uh, like one is just like ah, we're sticking on a desert planet because that's cool, and the other one's kind of like no, let's actually see what society would look like on a desert planet. That's, yeah, what really- one is is like very aesthetic world building, and one is very considered. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, so then uh, again jump in at any time Bill when you're like I, mm-hmm. I have a point here uh, the next point I have is that uh, awkward dinner parties are my jam uh, somewhere in the middle of the book there's they have a big dinner party and again there's lots of like verbal warfare going on and everyone's just really awkward to one another and throwing jabs and jibes and being just real dicks to one another underhanded compliments that sort of thing I I just finished re-watching Downton Abbey <laughs> and Downton Abbey is like that's one of the best bits in that TV series where they all sit down to have dinner all the posh people and you know they can't, they would never be rude but they'll yeah. say they'll say subtly awful things to one another weaponized politeness like, weaponized politeness and there is so much of this in the in the in the dinner scene in in Dune mm. and I absolutely adore it I just think it's so fun I absolutely love it and I, I was so happy uh, after having finished out Nabby and seeing that, I'm like, yes, I'm back in my happy place. Posh people being snarky with one another at dinner. Yay. Um, okay, I'm going to jump in with two points here. Um, that scene, I think, well illustrates one of the issues that I had with the writing. Oh, okay. That it does a lot of 
directly telling you exactly what various characters are thinking yes. and it, it it jumps between them very rapidly maybe it was just the way my, my ebook was formatted that maybe it's more clear on on the page that like you know the, you know there's a, a different paragraph and it's a new point of view character or whatever but there was times where i found it quite difficult to follow that it had changed point of view character and it's it can be really unsubtle in moments it's like someone will say something and then you'll have their internal monologue of the precise mm-hmm import of that statement and it just like just tell us a little bit less let us like think about things a little bit more it does a, it does a lot of a lot of showing yeah. sorry a lot a lot of lot of telling not showing uh, which i know is is not always good writing advice but it's kind of i think it could have benefited a bit here um, so uh, let me jump in before you go on to the second point. The um, I think the audiobook solved this an awful lot at least the one i was listening to because each of the characters uh, was given was a different person. Oh right. Uh, and so I, when you said that it jumps around a lot, I was like, I didn't even notice that because it was just like different people were talking. So it just it felt like normal and conversational. I totally agree with him overtelling stuff. Um, and I, yeah, I, I just found it a little bit distracting when at times there's kind of like you know Jessica using her Benny Jesuit training divine that X Y and Z. I'm like, yeah, I get it, I get it. Like she is. She has powers of perception. Like I, I, I mm. it's fine. Like this has been established. Just let them have a conversation, and I'll just, I'll infer all of this. It's all right, pal. Uh, he was very yeah. much into that. It reminds me a little bit of my issues I had with Mistborn, where when, uh, when in Mistborn they were fighting, uh, Sanderson, when characters were fighting in Mistborn, Sanderson was constantly telling us like the precise amount of metal that they were burning to do the things that they were doing. He's like, you know, uh, yeah, you know, Bill, right. Bill swung to the left and he only could do so because he burnt like five milligrams of silver in his gut and then the mercury flared up and he was able, and you're just like, I get it. This is powered by metal. It's fine. Just write a, write a scene, write a normal fighting scene and every time someone does something a horrifically fantastical, I will have assumed that some metal was burnt. It's cool. <laughs> It's fine. You're grand. Don't worry about it. So I got a little bit of that vibes from from mm. the way Herbert wrote. Point two to jump in about uh, to spin off Downton Abbey. Um, uh, this is this is slightly tongue in cheek, but I actually found analogs with a different period drama. I don't know. Downton Abbey's the only period drama I've ever really liked. <laughs> I thought you liked this other one. Oh, I mean, I what's this other one? Poldark. Poldark. You found an analogy with Poldark. An analogue, kind of, yeah. Explain. So, the fundamental conflict in Poldark is between Ross and George, right? Oh, George is such a dick. (laughs) He he is the worst character in all of literature. Oh, he's awful. (laughs) Um... So yeah, that's that's kind of the, the fundamental conflict there, agreed? Uh yeah, yeah, agreed. If you think about like the implications of that or the the what what is being said by that, Ross is an aristocrat. And George is uh mm-hmm. George represents uh voracious capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's kind of a regressive thing there. It's like, oh we you know, we shouldn't have all this liberal capitalism, we should have uh, noble patricians to show us the way. Sure. I don't think that was uh, necessarily his intent, but that's that's a reading you could take of it. Sure. Um, that's kind of the the distinction with the the Harkonnens and the Atreides. Um, it is it is said at one point. I think it's contradicted by other things, but it is said at one point that the Harkonnens uh, were raised up 
um, into nobility, and they had they they were um, they kind of bought their way into status, and you can see that they are they are rampant uh, exploiters of of the land. Like you know, they they just want to squeeze Arrakis for all it's worth, and and all that kind of thing. And the Atreides are actually you know you know quite noble, and they use their um, aristocratic uh, privilege for good broadly. Mm. That's, so that was just kind of like, oh, it's like that other thing. Um, that's really interesting. I suppose what makes a, an extra wrinkle on that is the fact that uh, the Harkonnens and the Atreides are actually like interbred a little bit as well. Yes, that yes. that makes it really fun. Uh, when it's like, oh, you're evil. It's like, oh, you're evil. Uh, we're the same. Oh crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. As as the 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 war leggings and the Poldarks become become somewhat enmeshed. This essentially is like. Paul, the prequel to Poldark. Prequel? No, the sequel to Poldark. It's Poldark <laughs> in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And and it's about it's heavily about um Commodities. the 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 industry of of uh, uncovering a resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same book. God damn it! Poldark <laughs> is Dune. Dune is Poldark. Um, they're the same thing. You've never seen them in the same room together. Um, <laughs> okay, my next point. This is skipping forward way far uh, mm-hmm. in the text, uh, just because like. The middle of the book, like it's it's fine and all. Like Paul becomes the super sh- the super shaman CPU dude. Um, yeah. Actually, wait. Yeah, let me just pop in here. The co- the becoming of the super shaman. Uh, 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 <laughs> let me interrupt myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like. I get that this is written in the the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I know as a modern reader, I kind of I, I I'm reluctant to engage well uh, with the one trope. Um, it's just I find it. Uh, it's just it's very boring when it's like our protagonist is like this all powerful, all seeing, can do basically yeah. no wrong sort of person, and they just like they don't really. If anything, their only flaws they're a bit too ambitious, and you're like, great, cool. Like, could we have like at least maybe two of those characters so we have a conflict? It's just he get he basically just becomes OP real fast for me and i'm yeah. like okay right fine you're a god great so this story is just now like who cares what happens obviously the god's gonna win there's a little bit of that for me but then i'm like oh okay this was written like what like 80 years ago now so i'm like oh, fair enough let's give it a bit of leeway 60 uh sorry yeah 40 60 years ago yeah so half a century i'm like okay you know fair enough um but yeah i get like yeah as a modern reader um it's a bit jarring did you what do you think about that i'm assuming you don't particularly love the he is the one narrative yeah, I I think it is given sufficient in universe um, uh, justification that it it is it is a de- very deliberate thing that he has been he is the 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 product of a process to create someone exceptional. Um, yeah, and that the so in in his own in his own um, self. You know his 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 innate qualities are the result of a deliberate process to create someone with those innate qualities, and the circumstance he finds himself in uh, is aided by all of the political and religious manipulation that has occurred. Um, so that that kind of gets it a pass from me, but I'm not I'm still not jazzed about it. Yeah, it still doesn't make him any less OP. Um, I I think like uh, Avatar is a, kind of a cool example of this being uh, done kind of really well the non-blue people one uh where yeah. it's like yeah the m night Shyamalan film 
<laughs> yeah, correct. Like specifically just that film, yes. <laughs> uh, where it's like, like Ang is literally like, you know, a reincarnated deity figure. Uh, yeah. who is like the bridge between different like spiritual realms and is like has skills that no other human on this world can have um but like at uh, throughout the text like most of it he's not spent going it, most of the, uh, the sorry the series is not him going around being an op godlike character mm-hmm. and it's only kind of at the very very end where he kind of like where it lets loose but most of the time like he's subject to constraints and weaknesses and flaws and things like that in a way that Paul in this book is not. Like, he's just kind of like, I am OP and there we go. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it's a bit antiquated, I think, this one character. Yeah, and I can see what you mean. I, I think so. Anyway, so the point I was actually going to make was Aaliyah. So Aaliyah is, so, so Jess, Paul, our protagonist, uh, his mother, Jessica, is pregnant uh, and then midway through the book, she has to undergo some sort of uh, ceremony thing where she gets consumed like a liquid of some description, I think. Uh, and yeah. um, in order for her to become a reverent mother. So she she basically OPs as far as her tech tree will allow her to OP. And this is like the ceremony to make that happen, to get her up into S tier. Um, mm. And as a result of that ceremony, the baby she is carrying is imbued with all the knowledge and power of Jessica and all reverent mothers or all Bene Gesserits, um, something like that. Uh, So she basically gets the thoughts and memories of just like Mm -hmm. everyone in this like mythical magic school thing. Um, And And is fully, fully aware and sapient as an adult human from like several months before birth yeah exactly she's she's yeah she's she has sentience in the womb and so she comes out right so this baby comes out uh again her name is alia i think she's referred to as saint alia uh in the book as well so the baby comes out and like i don't know why it's horrifying but it was it's horrifying to read and all it is is that there's a young child who's capable of coherent thought right that's it right like all we see in the book she doesn't really do anything kind of like gory horrific but just having a child have it uh, like I mean, at the end she kind of does well she kills the bloke yeah with the with the gun <laughs> she, she goes around the battlefield executing wounded enemies oh i think i missed that bit then sorry <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought all she did was she was she killed the the your harkonnen fella with the gum yeah. the, the gum jabber uh, the gum jabber yeah gum jabber. um i sorry i totally missed a bit where she just like kills all wounded people uh but prior to that right she was just knocking around this like tiny little two-year-old that was having adult conversations and had like all of the underhanded double layered meanings to it and like reading it i'm like i shouldn't really have a problem with this but like it's just so uncomfortable and i guess maybe it's something about like the innocence of youth being taken away uh, mm. And that sort of like naivety and beauty that's in the world when you're very young is just she's been denied that and that makes her a figure of like um, a, a horrifying tragic, figure. yeah, but but yeah, tragic, but also like scary and horrifying. Mm. And I don't know, did you feel this? Because I was weirded out big style by her. And again, for most of the book, all she's doing is going about acting like any other adult in the book. Uh, I, I found her found her more sad. I think um, it, it is horrifying. Um, and it's it, or it's it's unset. It's really unsettling. 
Yeah, it's disturbing. Yeah. 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 Um but I think yeah, I think the, the the bigger thing I found on on this reading was that it's just it's really sad because she's like in a way she's still a little girl and or you know at, at the minimum she's still human and people are horrified by her in universe and and reject her and and like see her as an abomination and that's just like a really horrible thing to endure as a as a human of any age. Yeah, um, like she still has feelings. Yeah. And oh, just a quick point. When it comes to her being involved in the movies, it'd be interesting to see how they do that because I could see a talking CGI child, uh, a CGI toddler um, being a bit jarring and weird. Mm. Uh, that's a potential point where the execution in the films might fall. I'm interested they, to see what happens. They might like play with the timeline a little that like it's, it's yeah. five, she's five rather than two or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then even then, like, get a five-year-old to deliver, like, politically complex lines uh, mm. can, you know, it's meant to come across as, like, horrifying, but it can just come across as being silly. Mm. Uh, so there's an interesting thing that with the movies there. Um, two more points, two more points on my end. The sandworm, the giant worm invasion at the end of the book is equal parts one of the most baller things I've ever, ever read and also one of the most disappointing. Be- interesting because right it's like so again for people who haven't read the books like the, so the 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 dominant animal on this planet are these like giant worms giant sandworms they're like hundreds of meters long mm-hmm. um there's horrifying beasts right and we find out in the course of the book that like everyone all the posh people they're on the outworlders they're completely terrified of these these worms but the fremen they are terrified, but they also utilize these worms. The the locals in the planet, and they ride these worms, and they're much more holistic sort of uh, involvement with the local ecosystem than the outsiders. And so we learned they can ride the worms. So then it makes sense that at the big battle at the end, they will ride the worms into the battle. Can you imagine like coming down the dune on a giant ass, like horrific slug thing? Like mm-hmm. amazing. But the problem was that the whole, from my perspective, that whole bit lasted like one second right it's kind of like we were told like there was a giant battle sandworms came lots of people died and now yeah. we're going to get right back to the politics where and it more or less happens off screen and it more exactly exactly and i'm like i kind of like what i want here right is i want a i want a helm's deep scenario like i want to see battle and i want to i want to get into the trenches with the warriors i want to see characters we know die in very close contact quarters and then at the very end when all hope is lost i want to see these worms like coming flying over like uh these dunes and the fremen are on it and the the, uh the reinforcements arrive and then finally it's won but it's all just kind of like there was a battle and worms and done that's it and you're like Mm -hmm. oh herbert god damn it (laughs) What um what I think is really cool there. I mean, I think it, it is a great. I I agree with you there. It's 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 a great image, but we don't really get to see the image. Um, what is also very cool though in in that sequence is um how they how they get to where they're going, um with the worms. There's a kind of legal and conventional uh yeah yeah ban on the use of atomic weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but like with with a, a neat bit of sort of. Reading it precisely legally, the the ban is on using atomics against humans. So instead, they use them to like go through a mountain. Like they they, they blow a hole in the mountain range yeah. that they can get the worms through. And it's like, oh, you know, no one would think that we can use atomics. You know, there's this there's this like total total block on using them, and they just like 
come up with this fun way to actually get around that and that no one expected. I always enjoyed that part. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was. And then he added out with the Emperor at the end, Paul, when he was like, yeah. how dare you use the Atomic City? Well, actually, if you refer to uh, chapter 3.2, subsection <laughs> 1, uh, I thought, yeah, I thought that was really fun. But again, all off screen. And like the whole book was... And, and I appreciate like not just writing about violence, right? Because that can get real boring real fast. And like a lot of the book was about exploring the culture of Arrakis and the mythos that is Paul and all that. Um, but like, I just, it's so skewed that like 99% of the book is that exploring the mythos and then like a tiny little mention at the end towards this little battle and that's it. Mm. And you're kind of like, at this point, man, almost just don't include it. Like, just don't have a big battle. Like, have more of that stuff. Just, you know, the emperor comes and he's subjugated via political machinations and you're done. It's like, make a more, make a bigger deal out of this bloody sandworm invasion. You blew a mm. hole in the side of a mountain and giant ass worms came through with like Fremen with blue eyes riding on their back. How baller is that? Like, lean into it more. <laughs> oh. uh, and then my final point is the whole ending sequence isn't good. I don't think, because it just, again, it's such a slow burn, the whole book, and then within the space of, like, a chapter or two, it's just over. And Paul is suddenly yeah. king of the universe. And you're like, wait, what? How did that happen? And it all happens so fast. And, like, lots of things just wrap up really quick. And I I really did not like that at all. Like, it, it really, this book is already long, but I kind of felt like it needed to go on a little bit longer to make that climactic event of becoming emperor really fit well and give the weight that it needed you know um, it, it feels very kind of sudden and neat doesn't it yeah way too Overly neat yeah yeah precisely i that was that was my big takeaway i think the first time i read it i think to, to the extent that was that I, that I enjoyed it was like it's a good book with a bad ending correct i would i would 100 percent agree with that uh, and i guess maybe you know if you read the whole the whole is there like eight nine books something like that it's a lot of uh, herbert or so frank herbert wrote six and then uh, there was meant to be two more, which which his son wrote, and his son wrote a lot of prequels and interquels and stuff. So there, yeah, there's a lot. So I guess maybe if you read yeah. everything, then it makes sense or whatever. But again, th- this goes back to our intertextuality thing a little bit. It's kind of like this should this book should work on its yeah. own as a thing, you know. And on its own as a thing, it doesn't work uh, to, because uh, because of that end part. It's just it's too quick, too neat. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think I think it's it's a. For, formally flawed in that regard but I think it is kind of a complete story I think that you know there's there is something yeah. there and I think it doesn't require sequels as well I mean I, I haven't read I, I read the second one um which I, I remember thinking conversely that it wasn't a very good book but I did like the ending um but again that was that was a long time ago hmm. I've not read any other ones actually so um and I probably I probably won't read them until there are movies about them, uh, mm. just to do with the reverse. I kind of like that sometimes. Um, mm. Broad. So that's basically my chronology of things. But just some two, two, three more broad, broad things that you can okay. you can discuss with me if you want. But just putting it out there. Um, well, I've got a lot more points, so I can I can go for a while. Uh, God, this episode's gonna be so long. I'm so sorry. Maybe we need to make these book reviews their own episodes in the future. Uh, <laughs> they can they can go on. Uh, Robophobia. I really enjoy the trope of it's the far future, but we don't use robots and computers for the most mm-hmm. part. I really enjoy that. And it 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 lends itself really well to sort of a science fantasy setting, which I really yeah. enjoy. Um, 
because sometimes uh, computers can just be used as a form of magic and it's a bit meh. Um, so yeah, I love I love that they were like I, I the the culture bit of like we don't make computers in the in the image of humans or whatever. Um, I love that. I think it's great, uh, and it, and it, the story is richer because of it. Um, mm-hmm. So props to Herbert there. And the other thing, the props uh, I would give him is that there was a non-discussion about terraforming, which is also really fun because the Fremen want to uh, transform the world into a lush paradise. And we didn't get, uh, unlike like Red Mars, uh, uh, we didn't get pages and pages and pages of philosophical debate about whether that's a good thing. It was just kind of presumed that like that's what the Fremen want. Cool, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no kind of ethical discussion because again, like there's only so much of that you can read where all the arguments have just been laid out, and you're just rehashing the to terraform or not. Yeah, the discourse. So I'm really, I really enjoy that it was just kind of like that was mentioned that that's a, a thing that the Fremen want to do: turn Arrakis into a green planet, and that was it. Good, done. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Um, and my final point is I dislike when settings are set in the far future and the dates used uh are in like um are like five six digits um where it's like it's the year 13,208 um because and it's just a small point but like one would assume after a while surely for the sake of like sorting or something uh that they might like just re jigger the date so instead of it being the year 13,208 it could be like you know 1-4 or something you know like just wrap it all up uh, abstract it away a little bit because otherwise like what's, what's the end game here like the date is the year 12 quadrillion 400 and like what you know it's ridiculous so whenever I see like it's the future the year 10,000 I'm like oh stop it stop it no one's going to do that you can't sort anything anymore come on just rejigger the numbers God damn it. That's, that last point is bizarre to me. They're rejiggering the numbers. Yeah. Why, why would you? Like, if it's like... I mean, I I don't think people kind of... Th- you said, like, you know, what's the end game? But I don't think people think in those terms. They just start counting and then, they, like, they stop counting if something stops them from counting. But if, if there's been a continuous society that has numerically counted their years for 10,000 years, why wouldn't they get to 10,000? Well, well, okay. Again, there's no computers here, so my point is relatively moot in terms of Doom specifically, but like, sorting. Sorting becomes a problem after 9,999. Why? Well, because, like, well, okay, the way I sort all my files on a computer, I sort them year, month, day, right? Oh, for God's sake. So, when we get to the year 9,999, my sorting works correctly, but once we skip over to 10,000, the sorting breaks because 10,000 will now be one of the first entries. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, but that's that's based on some very specific assumptions about your preference and about, like, how certain kinds of numeric data are parsed. Like, it's... I mean, that's but that's a big deal. I mean, like, lots of important numeric data is parsed like that. 
You know, like yeah, but that's again, I'm not no. But I'm saying that is one very specific assumption about how it's parsed. Like it, like that's that is a world building assumption that you are making. It's not like it's a it's a, a natural thing that everything will be parsed in four digits, or that that you know we don't have eight thousand years to come up with something that can accommodate extra digits and not disrupt the existing systems we have. Oh, okay, well, yeah, fair. If you're gonna be like some other thing is vented yeah sure but like i don't know i don't think it's that uh like specific because like if you count right but like why does why would it not happen when you're going from centuries to millennia when you're going from three to four digits like it's oh yeah i mean i guess it would yeah i guess i'm only thinking about it because we're in a culture of four digits yeah i'm thinking about the problem arising when we go to five digits but yes it would arise every time there are new digits a, a new digit tacked on so like just just instead of doing that just do like fucking put a put a suffix at the end that says like the first age or something like that the year the year 200 of the first age you know or something like that like it's just it'll break it like <laughs> but it, like it only breaks it if you like refuse to change this one very minor specific thing about how we how we frame and consider and parse but but also I agree okay, I agree with that to a certain extent. But also there is just like um, uh, I, I suspect that uh, a lot of humans probably don't deal well with giant numbers, right? Uh, like I don't ever expect there to be like an iPhone four thousand. I actually no, that doesn't count because it might just skip to that for coolness. But there's not going to be like an iPhone an iPhone four thousand one hundred and thirteen. Right, like they're going to do something to the numbers to make them more palatable, and also from a linguistic point of view, like it takes a lot of effort to say, you know, in the year thirteen thousand three hundred five uh, uh, three hundred forty-two, right? Like that takes a lot of linguistic effort, and that just keeps becoming more and more. And so maybe there's an argument to me that eventually, like the speakers will just want to grind this down into something that's just a little bit easier to 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 parse, because that's a lot to say, you know. Yeah, but like, first of all, like you, you don't necessarily have to say the entire name of the thing every time you refer no. to a year. Like, people didn't say one thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight, the year of our Lord. They said ninety-eight. Um, in the in the nineteenth century, yeah, people fair. said the year two to refer to eighteen o two, like. Yeah, I get, that's actually that's actually a good point. That like people will just do this reduction uh, outside of the form formality of the date. The date remains yeah. the same; just keeps counting up. But people will just be like, "It's the year two. Yeah, even though it's third. Yeah, okay. Yeah, do you know what? I take back what I said. You've convinced me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Jesus. Oh my God! It's nearly three hour episode. Oh my God. Okay. Right, Bill. Give me your wrap. Give me some points, and then we, we must wrap this up because people will be asleep. Um. Okay. Uh. What have I got here? Um. So one thing that I I commonly see said is that it is a, a an explicit kind of analog to the real world. Um. In that spice is oil and so on, and that. And I want to say that when I'm saying this is these are not my beliefs; these are a thing that is said. Um, that it's parallel to um, in in other ways that the necessary resource for society that society like requires comes from a desert inhabited by religious fanatics, right? 
Now, there, there is obviously a huge amount of like Islamophobia inherent in, in making making that statement, um, which is which is one thing um, that I do not agree with, but I'm not qualified to further address. But I also wonder about that. Like, was that a, a resonant thing in 1965? I wouldn't have thought that it was. I wouldn't have thought that it was. And is that like a thing that people are kind of retroactively applying to it as as a deliberate analogue? Um, because I wouldn't have thought that would have had resonance before, like, the the oil crisis in the 70s um, and general Western awareness of Islam um, and the idea of, of Islam as, like, uh, as violent or, you know, the, the meaning of jihad as a word or the, the understanding of the, the meaning of jihad as a word. Um, I, I get the impression it is something that is misrepresented in uh, Western discourse. Uh, that that wouldn't have made like a lot of um, well, that wouldn't have been familiar to people until like the, again the seventies or eighties or something. Mm. Um, so that is something that I th- I think that analysis of it feels kind of anachronistic to the context it was written in. Um, but I don't know. That's interesting. Um, that's yeah, interesting. that's something I thought about for a while when people make that that comparison. It seems like would would Herbert have have thought of it in that way? It seems like the the context he wrote it in wouldn't have had a lot of the elements there. It would have had some of them, but not not like the specific kind of Islamophobic ones. Um, yeah. Do you think? Do, oh, at the risk of again making this like a four-hour show, um, do you think that maybe what people are going for is a much more surface-level uh, analogy? They're just kind of like spice is an important commodity. What is an important commodity in, uh, on Earth? Oh, it's it's petroleum. Well, well, that's that's definitely there. But I I have seen it said that the other thing that I get specifically it's a desert and. I mean, the, the the Fremen culture has explicit yeah, um, yeah. Islamic uh, influences, certainly, arguably roots. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's because their 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 Zen Sunni is 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 their their origin culture. They they were Zen Sunni. Um, um, what is that? Is that a made up term? It's uh, so I think it's meant to be a, a syncretism of of Islam and Buddhism. Oh, oh, yeah, like, I see. Like, Zen Sunni. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's one thing. What else have I written here? Okay, I, we didn't actually talk that much. Uh, well, no, I suppose we did, but I have some very specific world-building um, uh, reactions here. Mm-hmm. Uh, love the language stuff in it. Uh, uh, seeing just like little bits of things re- relating to Earth languages I thought was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. A Cielago is a bat. That was neat. Oh, what's that in the book? What's a Cielago? Cielago is, it's a, a, a little uh, bat creature that's used to carry messages. Oh, okay. Wait, and you're saying it's neat because the word Cielago means bat in some that lang. Murcielago is is the is the Spanish for bat. Oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. cool and cool. it's a type of Lamborghini. Um, That's right. It is. Yeah. Uh, world building. Whatever it is. Near plausibly complex, layered, messy societies. I really like that. It's not everything's really really neat. Yep. Um, and it it it's kind of you can see real world things leading to it. That's that's uh, uh, something I really enjoyed. Um, there's specific kind of analogs of things. I'll come back to those in a second. Um, I kind of felt a, that the the ecosystem of Dune couldn't sustain a massive thing like a sandworm. That felt a little unrealistic to me. But you read in the appendices that it lives on plankton in the sand, so maybe it does. And Herbert apparently worked out a lot of this stuff that that the actual the biology and it made sense. I read somewhere, yeah, that like part of the whole reason why he wrote this book was just an ecological exploration 
Yeah. Um, yeah. The religious world building, because that's something that we've talked about in the last two episodes as well. Um, so incredibly cynical. <laughs> <laughs> like, both in what we see in, in, in the, in the narrative, um, that the, the Bene Gesserit have seeded, uh, myths that are useful to them and ex- expedient to them all around the society so that when Jessica, who's who's been uh, Bene Gesserit trained, finds herself in Dune, she's able to, like, rely on, you know, knowing what the Bene Gesserit will, will have said yeah. and how they will have altered people's beliefs. Um, it's very, very cynical, the, um, which is interesting because so much of it kind of is true. Yeah. No, the Missionario Protectiva is what yeah. it's referred to as. Um, exactly. And yeah, then it, I mean, yeah, like the, you know, missionaries spreading Christianity. One could say that's quite cynical as well, you know. Um, in, you know, implanting the religion of the, of the white man into non-white places as a means of kind of like... Uh, well, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, that's a good analogue for what they're doing. What they're oh. doing is they're introducing elements they don't, they're not changing the religion they're not replacing a religion with their own religion they're doing something a lot more subtle that they're manipulating the beliefs oh, yeah. so that they will be able to exploit those beliefs yeah yeah uh, and then with the the this thing about the orange catholic bible again from the appendices there's the the council of ecumenical translators is the group that that uh wrote the bible um and you know it's they're responding to this huge change that has happened in human society uh and you can look at that kind of optimistically that that is all it is like you know we have had this change in our consciousness and religion is going to change as a result of it or you can look at it again incredibly cynically that it's now politically expedient for this to occur that you know religion needs to be altered for political reasons um yeah and I think that's probably the more likely one because overall, the 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 setting is so incredibly bleak. Yeah, it's like in ways I like I kind of had forgotten. Like it's so like genocide is just such a casual concept <laughs> in in these characters' um, affairs. It's like okay, well, I guess we just need to kill off all the fremen. Yeah, and even even Thufir Hawat, who who's like the Atreides mentat, when he he thinks the Atreides are dead and he's trying to get in with the Harkonnens so he can betray them. He just goes along with this genocide to further his own ends of mm. betraying the Harkonnens. And it's it's really awful. <laughs> I, I, I will say your man, Baron Harkonnen, uh, he is he is a particularly unsavory, disgusting, horrible character. And uh, yeah, uh, both in universe and kind of afterwards, like the fact that they made the the the, the villain a, a fat gay rapist is a bit like uh, oh, yeah. d- doesn't scan so well 60 years later oh that, that's problematic that i can't believe i didn't actually make that connection to that like stereotype uh i yeah that's there uh, yeah the whole thing surrounding him is, is awful yeah um so that's most of those points taken um okay actually you know, one, one more kind of world building kind of thing uh, or, sorry, two more world building kind of things. You know that Chrisach uh, Hadarnak, which is Paul's, um, what the Bene Gesserit are trying to create, and that's what Paul is. Yeah, the Shaman CPU. Yeah. Uh, do you know that's based on uh, a real world concept? No. So, uh, linguistically, anyway, um, 
in Hebrew, there's the there's the concept of kefetzat haderach or haderesh. I'm definitely mispronouncing that. I I I don't know how to read uh, either neither Hebrew nor romanizations thereof. Um, so apologies for that. Um, but it means the shortening of the way or the contraction of the road. Oh, um, yeah, that's what that's what it means literally in Dune as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it does. Yeah. Um, now it doesn't refer to a person in in the Hebrew, uh, but it's like a thing. It's it can either mean sort of like teleportation or bilocation or or a kind of a miraculous event of of you know doing something sooner than it should be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah, that's just that's kind of neat. Um, and I was actually just reading the other day about uh, the use of uh, slave troops in various Islamic cultures of the Middle Ages. Hmm. And it's pretty much just what the what the Sardukar are. Yeah, the Sardukar as well, like, you know, uh, we're meant to feel, like, um, hostile towards them. But again, I feel kind of sad. Um, you know, they're an enslaved people and they're, you know, raised and trained on a prison planet. For the sole mm. purpose of killing, like it's a whole, like it's a basically a race entirely subjugated for violence. And you're like, oh. I, I didn't think of them as being a, co- a coherent race as such. It, it was just that the you know, people are sent there, and from those the people who are sent there, that's how the Sardaukar are populated. Oh, I thought. Sorry, I, I could have missed this in the text, but I thought it was that the Sardaukar are natives of the prison planet, and they are subjugated there and trained, um, and then sent out. Possibly that that wasn't what I took from it, or at least that wasn't it wasn't just that. Well, because because there's there because they made analogies in the text about how the Fremen could literally be the Sardaukar in that they live on an extremely hostile yeah. world, make that a prison planet, and train like Sardaukar 2.0. So again, mm. the impression I got was that just like the Fremen, the Sardaukar are like a ethnicity of people. Okay, yeah, I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, but. Yeah, cause there was actually a thing on Ask Historians on Reddit the other day about this this thing of of slave soldiers, um, um, and it's just it's 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 really interesting. The so I I guess that must be something that that uh, Herbert deliberately did. They're 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 essentially janissaries, um, and they're raised from this, or even more like um the Mamluks who were, uh, they were Turkic, um, and they're they were um kind of mainly horse archers, I think. Hmm. And they were raised on the steppe, so they they were born to the saddle, and they were born to, um, you know, tactics and and combat, and then they became uh, powerful in, um, Egypt, and at one point actually had power. They 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 were they were the rulers, but they stayed um, a, a distinct group that had had ties to the to their ancestral thing. They didn't like settle in the same way in in Egypt as yeah. as other kind of uh conquerors or people who take over empires often do. Wow. Um but anyway, yeah, so that that's interesting like and again it's the thing about the harsh environment there and the the, the being raised to brutality or not brutality but being raised to difficult scenarios and and the tactics and the violence and stuff. Um a fun historical note. Um my final thing is is there kind of a meta or postmodern thing that you you can kind of take out of out of Dune. Um Paul is very aware of his 
position in history yeah. and in legend. So, like, in in story, essentially. Yeah. And that is kind of reflected in the fact that the, the start of each chapter has these extracts from hagiographies about him. Yeah. So, I don't know, is, is there kind of a reading of it that it is kind of the text itself isn't totally neutral? Uh, or that, that there's kind of a... I don't know, I, I, can't, I can't quite articulate it here, but I feel like there's, 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 something, there's something postmodern, there's something meta you can, you can get out of it. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, with the way Herbert loves to be entirely literal uh, and explain to us exactly what the characters are thinking, uh, I find it a bit difficult to think that there's like an unreliable narrator type thing going on. Uh, I don't know. I certainly didn't get that. Uh, I didn't have that thought reading the book, certainly. Yeah. it's It occurred to me kind of, I'm not sure, like about halfway through the book, I was like, you know, he, he he's talking a lot about, or he Paul is thinking a lot about the him as a character. He thinks about himself as a kind of a character in, in like, with, without direct agency because of, of, you know, the tide carrying him along and, and being tied into things because of prophecy and stuff. And I don't know, I, th- I, th- I think there's, I think there's something there. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, again, I can't say I, I picked up on anything like that. Um, but perhaps I must. But you can see, you can see what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just don't. Uh, I wouldn't have immediately spotted something. Like that. I'd have to think yeah. about that and see. Yeah, crack is there. Anyhow, Dune. I think that is all my points. Hey, oh my god, three hour show. Oh, I, maybe in the future we really should do a uh, separate book review recording because I guess it gets expends. Uh, it allows us more time to elaborate on all the points as opposed to trying to fit it into green room might possibly might look at doing that perhaps we can have more of a digression about dates uh <laughs> <laughs> if it's a separate show anyway so that is dune um yeah like i said folks um we are going to do uh broken earth book three the stone sky links in the show notes for next time we review a book um yeah pick up a copy go over read and then uh you can join the shenanigans bill edgar this is us thank you so much for, for coming back bill uh I, I just can't quit can't quit uh folks thank you for coming back thank you for watching the show thank you for listening to the show thank you for supporting the show on patreon links are in the show notes um shout out to chat shout out to chat hi chat uh not you bob i don't like you <laughs> the rest of the chat <laughs> uh, we will see you all next month until next time Edgar, Edgar out, out.